You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Blood is red. Voodoo is blue. Sugar is sweet. Revenge is sweeter. Meet Sugar Hill. Not a place, but a brand new face. The foxiest, sexiest, deadliest chicken town. The mob took Sugar's man away, and now she's gonna make them pay. I want them dead! With a voodoo priestess called Mama Matres, and Baron Samney too, and an army of undead behind her, there's nothing that Sugar can't do. The mob has never seen anything like Sugar Hill and her zombie hitmen. Sugar Hill, from American International, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back with us this week is Mr. Chris Statue. Keep that drink away from me, honky. This week we are talking about Sugar Hill. Not the one with Leslie Snipes. No, this is from 1974, and it stars Marky Bay as the titular Diana Sugar Hill, whose boyfriend gets kicked to death in the first few minutes of the film. She spends the rest of the movie plotting and getting revenge on the guys who did it with the aid of voodoo. We'll be getting into spoilers on this episode, of course, so if you haven't seen Sugar Hill, go out and watch the movie if you don't want things ruined, or face the wrath of Baron Samedi. Heather, when was the first time you saw Sugar Hill, and what did you think? Well, the first time I saw the film Sugar Hill, like the whole movie was actually earlier uh, this week, though I was familiar with it because um, I saw the trailer years ago on a you know, on an exploitation cult film a trailer comp, and I was always like, oh, I need to see that. And then when I found out later on that Robert Corey was in it, because I'm a huge Count Yorga fan, I was like, oh, I really need to see that. And so... um. But strangely, didn't get to see it till this week, but uh, but I loved it. Yeah, uh, I'm with Heather. I first time I got to see it was yesterday. I heard nothing about it other than Mike was like, "Hey, it's a zombie movie, zombie black exploitation film," and I was like, "No, nah, I've never seen a black exploitation film before," so that's also a first. But it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I did not expect to. I mean, it sounds like it's right up my alley, you know, black exploitation zombie film. So it was really good. I enjoyed it. I can't believe this was your first black exploitation film. And I consider myself a movie critic. How how dare I? <laughs> no, I'm so happy. I'm so happy that 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 I got to bust your cherry. This is fantastic. It's really yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this is a good film to start with. I would say so. But Heather and I, I guess we can kind of debate that as we go along because uh, Heather, I think you've probably seen a few black exploitation films in your time. Absolutely, yes. Um, also, I would like to point out this is a historic moment. For the projection booth, because not only is this Chris's first black exploitation film, but the last episode we had us two, Celine and Julie, go boating. That was your first French surrealist comedy. It's true. And no one told anyone to go masturbate in the rose bushes on this one. <laughs> no, but there was a, there's a lot of other really great lines in this film. Hell yes, <laughs> and great mu- and great music on top of everything else. <laughs> that opening <laughs> song is amazing. <laughs> Supernatural voodoo woman. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. As soon as that started playing at the beginning of the film, I was hooked. Oh, yeah. It's not just enough that she's a supernatural woman. 
supernatural voodoo woman. And uh, this is oh, this is going to be fun, Chris. You have a whole world of cinema that you're going to just, I think, indulge in after after your taste of Sugar Hill. I, I was going to ask Mike what he thought I should watch next because I've been like looking into black exploitation, and I think we mentioned off air a couple things and Mike was like, not that. So yeah, this is, this is a good, <laughs> this is a good like open like door opening for me into that, into black exploitation. I guess one of the things we should do, Heather, is as we are talking about Sugar Hill, we should think about other films that we can recommend to Chris and to the audience as far as if this is one of your early black exploitation exploits, what other good films are to kind of follow up on this. And, you know, in the second half of the show, we'll definitely talk about other horror black exploitation films if you want to pursue that route. But then there are other films that I think are just as valid that you might want to, you know, take a look at next. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this will this is fun. I mean, this is actually a whole other element I wasn't expecting with this episode. So, this will be cool. So, my first experience with Sugar Hill was probably only just a few years ago. I had not heard a whole lot of great things about it. People seemed to be kind of down on the idea of horror meets black exploitation. I'd heard bad things about um, well, I love Blackula, uh, Scream Blackula Scream, of course, but people were like, oh no, Abby was kind of cheap and some of these other horror black exploitation films and Sugar Hill is pretty cheap. And then I watched it. I can't remember if it was via TCM or rented it on VHS or what it was, but I absolutely loved it. And one of the things I really loved was Don Pedro Colley in here as Baron Smetti. And he just, every time he's on screen, he just owns it, I think, anyway. Oh, yeah. He, you know, and that's the thing with Baron Samadhi, who, um, for anybody who's not familiar, he is the, uh, the voodoo loa of basically the crossroads and death. And he's one of the most probably infamous and famous uh, voodoo gods or spirits and so if you're going to have somebody play this this role with the top hat and just the big presence it's got to be someone great and don pedro brings it he brings it down he is and i think because i think most of us when we think of baron somebody we of course think of jeffrey holder who was great i love jeffrey holder but don pedro just he was yeah he he is one of the absolute highlights of this film i mean jeffrey holder in live and let die is good but Don Pedro Colley in this film blows him out of the water. It also, I mean, it also doesn't help in Live and Let Die. Baron Somdi is kind of a auxiliary character. He's not given the screen time that Baron Somdi is given in Sugar Hill at all. I mean, in Sugar Hill, he's one of the driving forces in the film. In Live and Let Die, he ends up, no spoilers, dying in a coffin of snakes, but not. He's on that train at the end. Yeah, he dies, but then he doesn't die. So... Then he goes on to take care of Little Orphan Annie, which I always found kind of suspect. So Sugar Hill, yeah, it's basically it's a revenge film. And that is at the heart of this movie is Sugar's boyfriend, maybe Bo, whatever. They're definitely in a relationship. And he owns this club and he ends up getting killed by these, I guess they're gangster type people it seems like there's you know t- again a typical black exploitation trope there's white folks who are controlling these black folks and the black folks are basically the muscle you know it's it reminds me of course of the uh, speech from the blues brothers the jew is using the black as muscle against you and you are left there helpless 
But in this one, these guys are definitely not Jewish. In fact, I'm surprised that they didn't have like the Italian accents going on. I was kind of glad that they didn't because there are too many times where we have Italian gangsters in black exploitation films. But this is what handful of white guys controlling a group of black guys, including the head black guy whose name is Fabulous, which I absolutely love. And he's played by Charles Robinson, who a lot of people maybe a lot of people might remember as Mac from Night Court. So it was great to see him show up. And I'm used to Mac, you know, I'm used to him being this kind of very dignified, older African-American gentleman. And in this, he's got like the big sideburns and the crazy hat and everything. And it's just like, yeah. And I, I was glad that he is one of the last to go, that he sticks around the most. And he really kind of proves his mettle as being a good uh, leader to these guys. See, I recognized him from something else, and this is showing my young age. In the show How I Met Your Mother, there's a reaction scene to something, uh, to one of the characters building a an architectural st- uh, building that looks like a penis. And there's a gif that has been made of Charles Robinson's reaction of going, that's a penis. And when I saw him on screen, I was like, oh, okay. That is what I knew him from, so... Seeing him in this, I was like, oh, okay. So, and then you mentioned Night Court, and obviously Night Court is you know, just fantastic on, on its own right. So I hadn't seen enough. I didn't, he looks so young in this movie, I didn't recognize him until I like looked into it. But with the sideburns and everything, he's a little unrecognizable. I had no idea that was like the Charles Robinson until I, I like was researching the film after watching it. And I was like, oh, holy shit, it's Mac from Night Court. <laughs> because <laughs> i grew up watching night court i love night court and, and mike you're so on point about just like what to you know it just shows what a great actor he is because he was fantastic on night court but yeah his character on night court's this like vietnam veteran who's you know just a really sweet guy you know just really kind of like one of the, the one of kind of the normal guys you know out of this like motley crew of people you know max actually kind of like the moral center in some ways in some of the episodes and so to see him as this you know this like henchman does and then get a uh well i don't want to i don't i think we'll wait till we get the spoiler but let's just say he gets a very memorable massage i just assumed that all the white guys were mobsters though like italian mobs italian mobsters without the italian names i mean his name's morgan it's not you know don morgan I, I just that's what I assumed. Well, there are black exploitation films where the guys are definitely Italian. Like, I mean, there are I think Black Bell Jones, the guys actually go, Mamma Mia. Yeah. That's what all Italians do, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Is that not what they do? I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you, you walk through Little Italy and it's just like, you know, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, all over the place. It's just like, geez, man. One thing that's kind of another cool thing is that this film is set, well, I think it was shot in Texas, and it's obviously set in the South. So, like, it makes sense to kind of have gangsters be, because they look mixed, and, I mean, Robert Corey looks more like he's of Irish, uh, you know, or maybe, like, you know, you, you know, English descent than, say, Italian, and he's the leader, and Morgan's kind of, you know, definitely more of, like, I'd say, what, an Irish or Scottish last name. And, but that makes sense in the South, you know? Like, you're going to have gangsters and under guys of the underworld that are going to be more of, like, a mix. Because, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of mutts. As I, I can speak this as somebody from the South who's a total mutt. Well, yeah, there's King, George, O'Brien, Tank, 
and then Morgan. So, but really between O'Brien and Morgan, yeah, you're right. They sound more Irish Scottish type of thing. Yeah, but that but that's kind of a cool little touch. I don't know if that if they put you know if the screener put that much thought into, it. <laughs> but but uh, but it's nice. And the other familiar face that I was really glad to see was when Sugar decides to get her revenge. It doesn't take her very long to decide that she's going to get revenge, and she immediately goes to this old creepy house, and she's looking for Mama Matrice. And it is played by this woman, Zara Cully, who, as we talked about uh, Kim Morgan, I was being young. I think Zara Cully was always old, or at least that's how I've only ever seen her, because she has this stark white hair, and she's just this kind of shrunken older woman and she was pretty much the terror of George Jefferson's life on the Jeffersons. So seeing her as anything else just really took me by surprise the first time. And it was kind of like sugar turns around and there's mama Matrice. And I'm just like, Oh, Hey, it's Weezy's mom. Well, I'll be thinking of you while I'm sitting in my itty bitty apartment, eating my TV dinner. And see, that was another one like Charles Robinson where for some reason, it didn't, like, I kept being like, that lady looks so familiar. And I guess the hair threw me off, you know? Like, the hair and, and the role's totally different. But, uh, so, yeah, there's actually a lot of TV connections between those two and the fact that um, I know the lead star, uh, um, I've got, I feel like I'm going to get her name, Marky Bay. Marky yes. Bay also did uh, some very, like, a lot of TV 70s work. If this was set in... New Orleans, I would say that she looks very Creole. She's very light-skinned and just has this very, she just has this elegance about her. And I thought that it was very smart to have her as our main character, to cast her as our main character. And I can see where she brings a lot of sexual tension to the role with her and kind of flirting with some of these mobsters and stuff. At least that's what I thought. Oh yeah, we even have like multiple characters just remark and be like, "Wow, that's a that's some lady, or that's a lady with a lot of class," and uh, she really pulls that off beautifully. And that also kind of adds, I think, a, a moral dimension that's neat because I think any other film that would have done this, where okay, somebody's exacting revenge with all this death, and they're dealing with like supernatural forces in this case, voodoo and Baron Samadhi. I kept thinking, like, are they going to punish her? Is she going to have to, like, you know, like, what's going to be her retribution? And there was none. And I loved that. I absolutely loved that. Because, I mean, all these guys are so racist and horrible. <laughs> so when they start getting killed, you're just, you're actually, like, rooting. You're like, oh, thank God. You know, as soon as you see Baron pop up, you're like, yes, this is going to be good. Like, somebody's going to lose their head. Some guy's going to get fed to the pigs. Like, literally the pigs, not the police. And, you know, <laughs> like, it's it's awesome. And uh, the ending, we'll get to that later, but the ending, I just thought, especially with Baron, I thought was just delicious. <laughs> well, what I like, too, is that there is this tension, and I would say it is a sexual tension between her role, her uh, sugar, and the rest of these guys, and especially because the one woman in the group of white people, Celeste, is completely jealous of of sugar, and is basically, you know, she's racist, and I think she's also racist as kind of a defense mechanism against, like, oh, you know, I'm going to put this woman down so I look better, so you guys, you know, pay more attention to me, don't pay attention to that n word, and she's 
the one who drops the N-word first, and she might be the one that drops it the most often, if not the only person that really... Well, I think there are other people that drop it, but she is vicious when it comes to her racism. And so I think her comeuppance is probably one of the sweetest moments of the film as well. Well, Morgan also makes a point of you know saying she's like a classless white trash... <laughs> learn learn from Sugar Hill. Like, learn from her. You're classless. And then it cuts to them fighting in a bar. <laughs> it's like the next scene. I was like, did I miss a scene here? Did, was there some scene missing where she just like shows up and just starts trying to kick the shit out of Sugar Hill? Like, I completely thought there was another scene there. And there was just like, you need class. All right, now go try to kill her. Fine. It makes sense. Sure. Oh, God. Celeste was the worst. I mean, she just, first of all, that accent, like, oh, my God. That, that was one of one of the most uh, unique Southern accents uh, I have heard in a long time, not since perhaps my reviewing of 2000 Maniacs. But she's so racist and she's so awful. And I, every time, like, Morgan, God, you could tell, like, he's already tired of her. Like, he's, he's kind of bitchy to Celeste throughout the whole film. I mean, like, at one point, you know, she's trying to you know, get on his good side. And he's just like, Celeste, everybody knows what you are. You know, he's just like so bitchy and awesome. And then he brings her inexplicably. I think he, I think he actually wanted her to get killed. Cause I mean, you notice at the end when he's going to meet up with sugar at the plantation, and this is going to be like the climactic sort of battle. And all of his men have been killed at this point. He brings Celeste like, like she's going to be backup? No, that's fodder. I totally think he brought her his bait where he's like, uh, she's annoying. Go ahead, you know, have your way with this horrible racist woman. Guys, I made a huge mistake when I said Valentine was one of the gangsters. I forgot that Valentine is actually the other African-American guy. He's the cop. Other- He's the cop. He's the guy who used to go out with Sugar and is now investigating after we have uh, a series of unsolved homicides. He's the guy that's there investigating this whole thing and finding the old shackle that fell off of one of these zombies, finding the mold that came off of the, the one of the dead zombies' hands. And he's the one who's starting to put this thing together. And he's actually a pretty good investigator. The, I think the only thing is that he doesn't want to see that uh, while he doesn't want to see that it's supernatural and he also doesn't want to see that it's sugar is the one that's behind all this. I thought that was another great performance. I thought the actor that played uh, Valentine was, uh, was quite good. He was very, very likable, just very intelligent. You know, he carried that character with a lot of just natural intelligence and it seemed like every conclusion he kind of came up, it didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. Like, aha, you know, or anything like that. He just, was like, this doesn't make sense, but I'm going to go with my gut and just see what is going on. Because, you know, they're finding corpses with dead skin cells on them. And, you know, finding, like, a, you know, the shackles from a slave that dates back to, like, what, the 1830s. And I mean, so they're finding evidence early on that is indicating, yeah, this is not your normal mob kind of type killing. Like, something is, is definitely not right in the milk. What I like, too, that it's not just sugar that's getting revenge. It's all of these black slaves who were just dumped into this swamp because they had a disease and they were just killed off without you know any kind of consequence or thought. And so really, it's sugar getting revenge using these zombies that really they're the ones who are getting revenge as well against the whole system that would have put them into the swamp. You know, the you mentioned the Valentine character, and I think the Valentine character, not the character, but the way the film handles his character is my one like biggest, not 
like I'm not too high on the way they handle his character in the film because he just gets written off like near the end. In a very good way, though, I think. It, it, but it felt a little cheap. I mean, they invested so much time in his character, and then they're like, oh, and then a voodoo doll. And it was just kind of like, oh, I mean, why even have this character in the movie if he's not going to be part of the climax in some form or fashion? If he's not going to find out that she's somehow involved. That was, I mean, he should have been there in the climax and just been like, all right, well, he got what was coming to him, and no one's going to believe me if I say that Baron Somdi and zombies killed him, so... Good riddance, whatever. I could definitely see that. I guess I didn't have a problem with it because I think if they had gone that route, though, because the film so is so clearly like on Sugar's side, on Diana's side, and you know, and it's obviously kind of setting him up to be like they're going to reconnect as soon as she's done getting her, you know, revenge uh, through voodoo, and as soon as he's like healed up from his, you know fall his quote-unquote accident you know they're obviously going to like reconnect their love affair and the thing is valentine is such a moral character that if they'd had him go my opinion at least if if you know, he shows up and sees okay sugar is definitely the one behind all of this he's he you know his loyalty is to like for justice and to be right by the law like he's an honorable like detective and officer and I think that would have just kind of been something that would have messed up his character, you know, messed with him. Maybe he would have tried to arrest her. I mean, who knows? You know, I think it would have been a less of a happy uh, ending. I mean, it's not the most logical, but we're talking about a film where somebody's invoking, you know, the dead <laughs> to to kill off their, you know, their lovers, murderers, and and her and her lover was murdered. Can we briefly talk about Langston's death scene where they're like the playground kicks? I was like, how was that killing him? I mean, that was, it took me, it took me a little while to connect with this film, to be honest, because the first 10 minutes, I was like, is this, like, is this voodoo or earth, wind and fire? And then I was like, oh, wait, no, it's a club. Makes sense that they're all dancing like that. Because it's very, like, 70s, very 70s dancey voodoo, which I don't have a problem with. But, um, and then, like, they're all, like, you're roughing up Langston. And they're like, the way they're kicking him, it totally just reminded me of like, you know, when you're a kid in school and you get picked on. So he's like, give me your lunch, buddy. You know, it just felt, uh, it wasn't the most gritty death scene, but. Um, <laughs> I was surprised that he was dead. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of, of Billy Bats from Goodfellas and, you know, Joe Pesci and, and Robert De Niro just going at it and them kicking him to death. So I don't know. I, I was, I was all about like, oh, geez, this guy's dead. Oh, man. My, Mike, you might have a, <laughs> you might have a better moral core than me and Chris, apparently. Yeah, I was, I was not on the same level of he's dead. I was like, I mean, they're kicking him, but like, come on. I will completely agree with you that things go very quickly at the beginning of this film. We move into it so fast. I mean, you know, the the whole voodoo thing is there maybe not even the end of the first act. I mean, they really move us quickly into that with the introduction of the characters, the introduction of the death, the, you know, the plot to revenge. I mean, it just bing, bang, boom, right into it. And so that's why certain things show up in the film and they've probably been mentioned via dialogue, but I just don't realize it. Like when suddenly she's a fashion photographer, I'm just like, where did this come from? This is kind of crazy. It's like, oh, okay. They probably said it at some point, but I just totally missed it. That's kind of the amazing thing about this film is I think by the time you get to like the 20 minute mark, you do all of a sudden you get really invested in it and you're just like sucked into this world of Sugar Hill where 
random things kind of do happen, but you're just like, okay, cool. You know, like you just learn to just learn to roll with it. Oh, here's a fantastic uh, private masseuse who's named Lamore. I wanted to see the follow-up to Sugar Hill starring Lamore, where like her lover gets offed by a different gang and, you know, she joins a devil cult because she's like real like this buxom redhead from Texas. Like she needs to be in a Southern death cult. But yeah, this, I know the fashion photography thing popped out of nowhere. I thought it was really interesting that Morgan, you know, I mean, he says some kind of like racist things at the beginning and he's obviously like the main bad guy, but he actually seemed to me to be the the less racist out of all of them. Some of those dudes were super racist. <laughs> they were really, really racist. Well, the first guy who gets picked off, who's there at the docks and is like punching guys and like, you don't pay, you don't work until, unless you pay me and like, again, dropping the N word and stuff. And it's just like, man, okay, this, this guy really needs to go. So I was really glad when Sugar shows up and calls him a honk, which I've never actually heard. <laughs> it was the, one of the best lines in the whole damn movie. Listen here, honk. Oh my. I mean, I guess if there's an abbreviation of the N-word, there needs to be an abbreviation of honky and honk. Pretty good one. Hey, Whitey, you and your punk friends killed my man. You know, you got one of the prettiest asses in town. I'd sure hate to see it kicked in for accusing people. I'm not accusing you, honk. I'm passing sentence. You ain't reading me, are you? And the sentence is... Death. Bull! And she drops that a couple times. It's just like, yeah, right on. And I love that throughout the movie, Baron Somebody just keeps showing up as different things. And like, you know, it'll be like uh, old Sam, the, the taxi driver, and takes the guy to his death to be fed to the pigs. Or, you know, he's working on the docks and he's got the hard hat on and everything. And it just is so incongruous to have this guy with all of them. Like, he's got like, what, gold teeth and stuff and these rings around his eyes and everything. And it, then the hard hat on. <laughs> I know. I loved, I loved that. It just, and especially because anytime it was like a visual signifier of something really awesome is about to happen. It's like, oh, there's Baron. Okay, this is going to be good. <laughs> when he shows up as the uh, bartender at the bar yes. and, uh, oh, I love that. Hey, buddy, if you want to keep your head on your shoulders, you ain't seen nothing. Nothing. Sure, I ain't seen nothing. For sure, I ain't seen nothing. Perhaps a drink on the house, sir. My particular special, a drink that I'm famous for, the zombie. Don't choke on it yourself, Sambo. Jesus, <laughs> he's literally just offered you a drink, man. And you're choke on it. Well, you're dead. I mean, you're dead anyways, but you're not doing yourself any favors. Though, though his death was the most anticlimactic of any of the deaths in the film. It was no chicken foot scene. No, it was no <laughs> chicken foot scene, and it was not being fed to pigs. Yes. Uh, he's just, like, pinned up against a wall, and then she, like, slashes on the head of the doll, and and he just bleeds from his head? Yeah. I was really hoping she would do multiple, multiple slashes and stuff. I mean, compared to the guy cutting his own heart out, it was the best scene, but the most anticlimactic death. Yeah, and with the guy with the knife who cuts his own heart out, she's just like, I have the power to destroy you. And I'm like, yeah, right on. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, so you brought it up. We got to talk about the chicken foot scene. Oh, my God. That was, 
<laughs> like that was that is when the film almost became surrealist. It was sort of like Sugar Hill, Sugar Hills Laage d'Or or something. It was like, okay, there's a severed chicken foot. Okay, it's moving on its own volition and it's crawling up the dude's leg. <laughs> and it's just it, it's so ridiculous, but so awesome, which is kind of a great description for a lot of things that happen in this movie. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of things that don't make a lot of logical sense, but they're fantastic. And all of these characters are so vile and just so terrible. Like when that foreman, that tank, you know, what a name. When he gets it, that is like one of the most – him and Celeste's death, I think. Or Celeste doesn't die. We'll get to that in a little bit. But um, though she probably wished she would have been. But those two, like for me, were the best. Oh, the chicken foots. God, it's hard to beat the the chicken. <laughs> the chicken foot. It's kind of funny because last week when we talked about the love witch, we had this whole idea of the one detective going to the old white guy who starts talking about witchcraft and showing him stuff from books and all this kind of stuff. We had almost the exact same scene with Valentine going to this British dude who starts talking about voodoo and all these things. It was just like, wow, this it was just a little too much of a coincidence. I was just like okay, there, there's an echo in here. Oh, I know. Well, this is this is the third film in a row that you and I have done that has supernatural tied to uh, spiritual belief systems. I mean, because even with Celine and Julie, that, you know, there was a lot of tarot references and magic. And then Love Witch, we have, you know, like paganism and Wicca. And now we've got voodoo. So I think that's a nice little uh, circular, nice little Laurent there. And apparently you always need an old white dude with a lot of books to tell you about it. That, that I guy, was kind of curious about why it was like this old white guy's like, I know everything about voodoo. Like, but do you? But that guy was such a nice character because he even said, you know, I've been studying this since I was a child and I just feel like I'm only now kind of breaking through. Like he was actually, I think, one of the few, um, if only like likable character who was white. Yeah, other than the coroner. But, you know, you don't really spend enough time with him to, to get any sense of personality. But no, the guy's real helpful. And he obviously regards Valentine as an equal and respects him. And there's a clear just respect between the two men. And um, I will say, unlike unlike our uh, witchcraft expert in The Love Witch, I feel like this guy actually did like know what he was talking about. <laughs> as opposed to just being like, well, in the 1500s, they thought this, so that was accurate. Like, <laughs> no, I don't... <laughs> how it works sir but yeah i thought i thought the uh, voodoo expert character was uh but he was quite sweet actually no, and you're right it was nice to have that relationship between him and valentine because yeah there was that equality and it was one of the few good relationships that we see in the film other than that kind of uh agreement to uh revenge that happens between matrice and the baron and, and sugar like when the the three of them towards the end of the film when they're just kind of all acting in unison it's like okay they're they're a team to be reckoned with but you know there, there's more just uh the desire to revenge rather than you know the any kind of friendship that's going on there though i did i did love all the shots especially of mama matrice where you know if there's any death or violence she's just kind of like quietly smiling like oh yes <laughs> it's a good day <laughs> it's a very good day and it is indeed because you know i mean yeah these these guys i just these guys are so I can't stress to the audience how racist these characters. I mean, not since like Birth of a Nation. I mean, like these guys are like D.W. Griffith racist. I mean, so when they get their just desserts, you're just sitting back going, "Oh, okay, you're 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 like Mama Matrice. You're just kind of smiling, being like, okay." I was laughing like the Baron. 
I'm surprised we haven't talked about yet what Sugar Hill looks like when she's enacting her revenge versus when she's not. Oh, yes. I wanted to bring that up, too. Her white, her rockin' white jumpsuit, super low cut with a sweet afro. Super iconic. It's on the, I mean, it's on the cover of, it's on the poster for the film. And, you know, normally in the film, she's kind of got her hair down, but then... You know, when when she's enacting her revenge, she's got, you know, I guess her hair changes a couple times in the film. But the afro is I associate the afro with any time she's taking her revenge on the to use her phrase, the honks. Oh, yes. Well, I loved it because at first I thought, are they only going to bring it out when there's an actual action? You know, like when the, the literal revenge is happening. But then, like, I noticed, you know, she she has it when she goes to meet Morgan. And it's almost like, oh, this is so cool. This is totally like this is her, you know. You know, I ass kicking, ass kicking hair, ass kicking outfit. Yeah, and I noticed that especially when we were talking about Fabulous's massage a little bit, and um, because <laughs> I probably would have been a little bit more curious as to what was going on if I was Fabulous laying on that massage table, but I noticed that when he does turn around and and look at her as she's leaving the room, she really could be anyone because that hair is so huge, <laughs> you just cannot see her face whatsoever. I loved that massage. <laughs> I mean, between Lamore, who I wish we had more screen time with because she's fabulous. But then, like, you know, Sugar just goes in and, you know, like, oh, we're going to do a group scene. And he's like, all right, you know. And and then, like, the group scene, of course, is the zombies have come in. And you, you see they're just, like, their nails and, you know, just they're, like, decrepit, you know, the nails of the dead clawing his back. And he's like, oh, that's so hard. <laughs> You know, it, it is just so fantastic. I mean, like to say that somebody's got a massage of the dead. I mean, that should have been on the poster. I mean, I would have probably seen this film years ago. If somebody was like, hey, Heather, there's a massage of the dead in it. I'm like, okay, I've got my checkbook. Would have been like the Orgy of the Dead poster where it's like, see the gold girl. And it, and this one would be like, see the massage of the dead. Well, see, our Orgy of the Dead worked for me. I, I, I bought that when I turned 18. So... <laughs> So the, that that advertising works very well for me. Filmed in Astrovision and Sexicolor. That needs to come back because there'll be a lot of disappointed people being like, there's no sex. It's just topless people dancing in a graveyard for about 70 to 80 minutes. <laughs> but I I digress. But uh, yeah, the, the scene, I, I was actually say it didn't hurt the film for me. I thought Fabulous had a little more, I almost kind of wanted to see more of his character not just because Charles, you know, Robinson's a great actor, which he is, but um, but I felt like there was definitely some potential for being like, well, you know, he's being kind of treated badly half the time by his bosses because he's, you know, shining. I mean, yeah, you know, we see him shining Morgan's shoes, you know, and stuff like that. And Morgan, as uh, you know, says something. You know, it's it's the only really super racist thing that comes out of Morgan's mouth in the film. But he says it to his to the guy that's his henchman. That's his right-hand man, and that's really, you know, you think about how messed up and dysfunctional that is, um, to say the least. Uh, so it's like, I, I almost wanted a little more dimension, but then again, we're talking about a film that has massages of the dead, so <laughs> I want too much, perhaps. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed when it comes to Morgan's death at the end of the film. I mean, it was great that, you know, we have this whole thing set up, and he's the last man standing, and yeah, he brought Celeste with <laughs> with him and left her in the car, and 
we have all of his guys come back from the dead. I was just like, okay, this will be interesting to see how sugar is able to use these white guys now against Morgan and really just kind of peters out, you know, like he ends up drowning. So he ends up getting the same death that all of these uh, original zombies got in the first place. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, Morgan at the end of the day, he didn't seem as bad as the other people. And he should have been, I think, you know, really vicious. He should have been mama from, um, Cleopatra Jones or something, you know, it should have just been like ardently racist and horrible and everything. But at the end of the day, he seemed like, you know, like I could have dinner with this guy, even though he's totally evil. Oh yes. Yeah. Which, which is an interesting element on one hand, but yeah, I mean, he compared to like, certainly compared to like Celeste and Tank. I mean, he seems, he seems almost like, oh, this guy's, you know, I mean, yeah, he's done some, some very bad things, but he doesn't seem like, he seems like a lesser of evil, but it will say, as I mentioned before, I was so happy to see, what did you guys think of Robert Corey in this? I can't say I was that familiar with Robert Corey. So you say he was in what Count Yorga? Is that where you know him from? Yeah, well, he uh, he's been in actually. Yeah, he was a, a number of films. He's probably best known for being uh, the titular Count Yorga in both Count Yorga Vampire as well as The Return of Count Yorga. Uh, he was also in a really good underrated film called Deathmaster, which is another vampire film, except he plays a cult leader. So it's almost like you have like a slight Manson tinge with the vampiric myth and it's um quite quite good underrated film and uh, he's also in the uh sequel to uh the abominable i would say this word the abominable mr fives or dr fives so dr fives rises again has robert Corey in it as well Corey was kind of being groomed at one point by aip after the success of the yorga films to be kind of like the next like vincent price the next horror star um and unfortunately like the timing because by the time you know, the mid to late 70s hit, horror was kind of, that style of horror, at least, from American International Pictures, was kind of going out the window and wasn't as you know, profitable as it once was, and it kind of hurt Corey's career quite a bit, uh, which is a shame. He's fantastic. I highly recommend the Count Yorga films. And this was the first time I saw him. I was just kind of disappointed they didn't give him enough to do. And like Mike mentioned, the death scene at the end is is a little it's up there with the the guy who dies in the bar it's kind of it's kind of anticlimactic you're expecting morgan to die in this like super gruesome fitting way and instead he just drowns in the worst looking quicksand i've ever seen <laughs> i mean it's like water it's like water with like stuff floating on top <laughs> i couldn't stop staring at it i like rewound it twice i was like oh this is why did you even choose to do this if it doesn't look good yeah, well, especially because at one point they bring out all the, the resurrected corpses of the henchmen. And I mean, including the one dude, I think it's O'Brien, maybe, who apparently doesn't have eyes anymore. And so, and that's like messed up looking and awesome. And yeah, I mean, like, why didn't they do more with the henchmen? They were so ghoulish and, you know, great looking. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess having the whole reference to how the the zombies in their human forms died is i mean i like that idea but yeah the execution of it i think got kind of lost yeah i wanted a day of the dead you know pulling the guy apart kind of a death for him that's what i was expecting when they showed all of them at at that kind of table i was like well he's gonna get pinned down and they're just gonna start pulling him limb from limb but no he just falls into the quicksand of his own volition more or less he sees a zombie and is scared and falls in. <laughs> they just kind of stare at him as he drowns. 
Well, those zombies are pretty freaky looking, though. I gotta say. I don't know what was going on with their eyes. That whole the ping pong, silver right? ping pong ball uh, eye thing that they have going on. I thought it was really kind of cool. I mean, it was completely different than any other zombie I've ever seen. It kind of reminded me of, uh, oh God, what was that old uh, sci-fi movie where they had the ping pong ball eyes? Was it Killers from Space? I think you might be right, yeah. And it just has this weird effect and stuff that just worked for me. I felt so bad for the actors, though, when I was watching it. No way in hell that they were able to see anything. (laughs) They're stumbling around. Oh, they were they were great though, and I love like the way there's almost like some really strange touches with them. Like when they're rising out of the dirt, there's like glitter. You see like glitter mixed in with the dirt. Like there's almost this sort of like mixture of just like decayed decrepitness. But then you have like the silver, and then you have the gold and the dirt. And I don't know. There was kind of a cool contrast. And um, yeah, the the actors they were troopers because they did a great job pulling that off. I mean, there's no way they could have been able to see. I kept thinking that half the film, like God, that had to be so uncomfortable. <laughs> and then covered in spider webs as well, mm-hmm. covered in like the fake spider web as well, because a lot of them had it like draped over their heads. Oh yes, actually, yeah. this is this is completely like a superficial thing to point out, but it, one thing that cracked me up about Mama Matrice's home was I don't know if the message was that legendary Voodoo Inns are not good housekeepers because that was there were spider webs everywhere there's a random snake <laughs> like a random boa constrictor just hanging out uh and mama and matrice can't hear anyone anywhere in her house except if they're standing right behind them yeah and uh, and then on top of that i mean but then it, like at one point you have a cat out of nowhere jump on morgan later on in the film <laughs> It's like, is there just is there just random animals? That snake must be the most docile boa ever because it's probably feasting on all the other random animals <laughs> hanging out in, in the home. I got the feeling that she might have been dead and just was being summoned from by Sugar. I mean, though they say some things later on, it almost sounds like Sugar and she had a previous relationship and everything. But there were times where it was just like, is is this a haunted house and she's just going in and kind of summoning mama from this but that was my first impression anyway ooh i like that see i didn't i didn't think that initially but i love that interpretation that kind of leads to the whole creaky i mean yeah the whole ha- having any sort of creaky old plantation that's you know kind of broken down is always a great horror looking kind of trope but just always it's a classic thing it looks good it works well yeah, but having this idea, I love that, especially because you notice, like, when Valentine goes to talk to her, she won't she won't acknowledge him. She just says, you are not a believer, and then just walks away, just shuffles off into the swamp, which I thought was so cool. And just the image of this little, this little but very powerful woman and all in black, you know, and dressed like she's from, you know, several decades before, which actually might also lend to to your interpretation mike because she's dressed up like like she's from like the early 1900s or early or late 1800s yeah it seems like she could have kind of been you know part of the house you know like uh might have you know uh, if there if it is this plantation she might have been one of the servants on the plantation and maybe she survived whereas everybody else didn't yeah. Didn't Valentine say at some point, like, she's 106 years old? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I, 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 I start out with your interpretation, Mike, and I I felt like she might have been alive. But when when he said, like, she's 106 years old, I quickly realized she had been dead. Like, she was like a ghost or a spirit. 
right? I, that's that's. I mean, I think that it. I think that it lends itself to that, especially when Valentine's like she's 106 years old. Okay, yeah, she's got to be dead then. The whole time, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about voodoo after the break, but the whole time, like, I kept thinking that sugar was going to get screwed over by the deal or like basically she knows when she makes that deal with the Baron to get her revenge that, you know, because revenge never works out in films. Right. I mean, it's always that whole, like if you're going to go out for revenge, you dig two graves and one for yourself and one for your, your victim. And I kept thinking, okay, this is going to turn bad any minute. Now it's going to be like, you know, the monkey's paw kind of thing. Like, He's going to say, okay, you're coming with me, or you know, she's going to get killed by the zombies at the end, and that she gets away scot-free? Oh, man, that just makes this movie all the more sweet. I think that that puts a whole different spin on this film for me, is that she manages to get away with it. I assume she wouldn't have if Celeste hadn't been Baron Samdi's bride. Yeah. Right? Like, if Baron Samdi... And Celeste weren't there at the end. If Celeste weren't there, Baron Somni would have been like, Sugar, you're mine now. Because he intimates that early in the film. He's like, I don't want your soul. <laughs> yeah, I don't want your soul. And so I assumed that that's what was going to happen at the end of the film. And then he takes Celeste instead. I was like, okay. I mean, this makes sense. But yeah, I, I'm used to these revenge films ending with both the characters just dead. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Because I, I too was like, oh God, I didn't. You know, because you really you grow to like sugar so much and you know, you're just like, you, you don't want to see anything bad happen to her. Cause he's, you know, she's kind of doing some justice granted, you know, uh, in a, in a way that maybe wouldn't be advisable in real life. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but you know, you, you, you love her, you love Baron Samity, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, you just want everything to work out. And then it does. And even better is that Celeste doesn't get killed. Now we can reveal this. She, yeah, she is sold, or, or you know, to Baron Samity. She is the price that he, that he mentioned uh, at the very beginning of meeting with Sugar. Um, and it's perfect because she's, you know, for a racist, horrible white woman like Celeste, her worst nightmare came true. <laughs> Because not only not only is she going to be married to and defiled, not just by any, you know, any African-American man, by by a voodoo god. That is perfect. I just I clapped. I actually clapped when I saw it. I was like, yes, yes, sir. Oh, this is if only more films had such uh, rewarding endings like Sugar Hill. And then you cue supernatural voodoo woman, and you're just, oh yeah, this movie really satisfied. The fact that the song comes back to close out the film was one of the best things. I was like, yes, it is back again, and it is rocking over the end of this film. Moves like that are just acts of love. They're little acts of love to the audience. It's always appreciated. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play three interviews. The first is with voodoo expert Joy Bostic. The second is with director Paul Meslansky. And the third is with Baron Samadhi himself, Don Pedro Colley. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. 
count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. Hey, Projection Booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. (laughs) Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you're listening to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? Joy Bostic, I'm an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University. And my area of specialization is in African American religions and culture. And I also focus on issues of gender and womanist and feminist approaches to religion. What got you interested in religion as being your, your major area of study? Well, I have always been interested in issues of public discourse, power dynamics, uh, social construction, but also sort of the ways in which people and communities find meaning and construct community. And for me, religion is a very powerful area that people draw upon to understand 
their lives, understand their own sense of identity, and it very much grounds sort of the way in which so many people construct their worldview. In turn, influences the ways in which we engage in public discourse and create community. And so either in terms of the way in which people rely upon their traditional views or deconstruct and reconstruct the way in which they engage them, I think is important for so many um, aspects of society and culture. And we can see it in the political discourse. We can see it in terms of the way in which people make choices about economic policy, the way in which people think about family structure, um, race relations, gender, et cetera. So for me, religion is very foundational in terms of how people think about their lives and how they construct and engage in relationships. So. Now, when you're talking about religion amongst the African-American community, is are you primarily talking Christianity or what is kind of the, the spectrum of religions amongst the community? I, well, I come from a Christian background, um, I teach in a way that really tries to approach the spectrum of African-American religiosity and particularly the way in which African worldviews out of Orisha and Wodu traditions actually shape not only ways in which African-American people think specifically about what we would define as religion, but the way in which they would define culture as well. Charles Long. Um, a religious um, a religionist talks about the fact that you know Africans who came here involuntarily with a sense of divinity and a worldview were placed in a position of creating structures in order to respond to the involuntary nature of their experience. So when we talk about cultural production like music, dance, jazz, blues so many things which actually have affected and influenced the American landscape or the United the landscape in the United States. I'm sort of one of those, those who's a member of a school that, that believes that this kind of Africanity and sort of these broad strokes actually influences all of that um, in many ways. I mean, there are many different strains of influences as cultures have come together here. But even in terms of Christianity, the ways in which African-Americans have structured that are still influenced by some of these ideas that come from the various religious traditions that came from different African, predominantly West African, Central African ethnic groups. And when I think about voodoo, I primarily think of, and I'm not sure if it's just cultural bias or what it is, but I primarily think of Haiti and uh, the West Indies, the, the islands. Is that a, a pretty fair representation, or is there much more uh, influence in the U.S. than what I'm thinking? So you can talk about Vodou in sort of three sort of geographical places. So you have in academe and even in Haiti, we use Vodou or Vodoun, actually Vodoun, V-O-D-O-U-N, from the Congo, Benin, those places where you have Vodoun or the spirits. And then in Haiti, you have the coming together of Dahomey, Fon, ethnic groups that come from uh, the Congo, the Bakongo region, where you have the development of Vodou in Haiti, which is also influenced by Catholicism and some of the Native American traditions. But because of the influx from the Caribbean into the Delta region, particularly New Orleans, you have many of those elements 
that come to bear within that region as well. In New Orleans in the United States, we tend to use the term voodoo more historically. As an academic, I always sort of move away from it because voodoo has this particular connotation, particularly when, you know, with film that doesn't represent the religion as full or as broadly as it ought. So that's kind of the trajectory of the religious traditions that are called voodoo, voodoo, voodoo. <laughs> now, I know in Sugar Hill, they talk about people who brought the religion to the area, to uh, the southern United States, slaves, and they say that they were from Guinea. Would that be a, a pretty fair idea of where it could have come from? It's more of a metaphorical term. I mean, that's another thing that Charles Long talks about. I mean, one of the things that sort of happened with Africans and the African-Americans um, within the Western Hemisphere is you have sort of all these ethnic groups coming together and the flexibility of African religions means there is there are additions to it. There are sometimes a loss or a um, exchange of language and terms. So Guinea sort of represents um, the African, the underworld, the African ancestors, as well as the continent itself, as sort of a metaphor and as memory. Guinea itself is not specifically a geographical or ethnic location, it represents the memory of this past and the connection with ancestors. So within the Vodou ceremony, you have the Potomitan, which is a center post around which the ceremonial ritual takes place. That center post, which is rooted in the earth, is rooted in Guinea as the representation of the underworld, as a connection to this African memory and sense of tradition. One of the major figures in the film is Baron Samadhi. He seems to be one of many figures within Voodoo. Can you tell me kind of what his role is and what some of the other maybe people that are, or, or I don't know, is he more of a deity or uh, how would you kind of translate him into something for somebody like me who grew up in a more of a Judeo-Christian kind of uh, a worldview? So I'll just say briefly something about Vodou. Um, Samdi would be a sort of a constellation of the Lois, which are the spirits. So, so these kind of African-derived religions really, in many ways, you often hear sort of practitioners also often even talk about, they really see this as, not a monotheistic, but they understand themselves to actually, their religion to have one God. And then you have this constellation of Loa spirits or, and, you know, deities, um, and Vodou, this most specifically, spirits that, who are in more direct relationship with the day-to-day lives of the people. So that's why you have these Loa that can be, that are associated with Catholic saints, for example. So, the day, the the so God is sort of creator, and not that this deity is sort of distant or not concerned about the people, but you know it's sort of like you you go directly to the Loa who sort of govern particular areas of your life as a way of you know sort of getting at um, these issues. So so going back to Vodou, Vodou is really sort of a religion that's really predicated on individual communal balance and independent relationships. So I always talk, tell my students, it's sort of like, you know, you have this, this um, 
constellation of social, spiritual relationships. So I usually put it as I like draw a circle and I talk about the cosmology of the worldview of Vodouas sort of see the world as the visible and the invisible. And they kind of cooperate. And so the visible world of the living, the practitioners, the people in the community, the invisible world are the ancestors who've gone on, <clears throat> the Loa, the deity, the spirit. Um, and so the rituals and the practices about how do you communicate across this visible invisible divide to maintain these relationships. You maintain these relationships through reciprocity. That's what the ritual are, the sacrifices, um, the uh, prescriptions of the mambo, the haungen, the priests and the priestesses. You have to maintain an equilibrium through communication, through reciprocity, um, through a given kind of take in these relationships. And when you have you know, sort of these epiphanies of enfleshment or what we call possessions of the loa, spirits, showing up in community, that's another, that's the most powerful sort of form of communication. So this constellation of loa, um, and in these traditions, you can have hundreds of spirits because, again, these traditions are, adapt- are adaptable. So they can include and increase. So when you had Africans who are coming from different ethnic groups, you didn't have, you know, sort of a sort of conquering of, you know, particular traditions. You had an expansion of the spirits or renaming of spirits that were significant for where they are now. So Samdi, um, Erzali, all of these are kind of spirits that become part of the Caribbean experience, and they speak to the Caribbean experience. So this notion even that, you know, those who were enslaved sort of a part of this, you know, sort of speaks to that, you know, that thing. So Samdi is a part of Gede, G-E-D-E, the Gede spirits. And the Gede spirits govern um, the dead, but they also speak to resurrection and life. That's part of what's always interesting about how Gede is portrayed in film, because Gede is really the one practitioners go to make sure that they're welcomed, you know, sort of into the land of the dead. Samdi um, is the one who governs that, but also that Samdi watches over them so that their souls are not captured and they don't become zombies. So it's really interesting, but he also is the spirit of resurrection. So, um, and sexuality. So all of these things are part of Samdi. Most of the times they, they get his depiction right. You know, he's top hat, you know, the skull, the cigar, he likes rum. So all of these spirits have particular kinds of things they like. A lot of times their personalities are based upon someone who lived or a legend of a hero, right? And then they become divinized or they become a spirit. What you had in the Caribbean, too, is you also had this play on, you know, these feudal notions because in Haiti in particular, you know, they were, they were exposed to French culture. So you have these constellations of spirits which have characteristics which are a play on, you know, French culture and these sort of different class expressions. What Vodou really tries to do is sort of work these very complex parts of community, of class, of gender, 
they play with it, they oppose it in various ways to maintain balance um, with all of these these various expressions. So Gay right, really represents us. He represents, you know, the community of the dead, sexuality, resurrection. And that's the problem within Western culture because we oftentimes out of, as you talk about Christian Western culture, we think in terms of binaries, it's good or it's evil. There's a problematic with placing sexuality and divinity in the same room, whereas in Vodou, it's like, no, this is all part of life and living. <laughs> and so we need to be able to appeal to, you know, the community as a way of trying to figure out how do we negotiate these relationships? How do we negotiate these kinds of power? And so Vodou is really about how do you negotiate this in a way that benefits the community? You know, Vodou fundamentally is a, is a religion of healing and balance. And it's all about the reciprocity of these interdependent relationships between the visible and the invisible world and amongst, you know, the living community as well. And so what you're always trying to negotiate are how you maintain this balance and equilibrium. So Samdi, so that's Samdi in terms of, of its complexity. Um, in the film, which is always interesting, you kind of, and in part that cinema, right, you have these cinematic devices. So I found really interesting sort of how Vodou works in the film. So the opening scene is very fascinating in terms of a sort of this cross between, you know, I was thinking about Jesus Christ Superstar and Soul Train. Like I, I felt like the opening sequence was this very stylized 70s dance movement. And then you sort of, you know, you, you, uh, you discover that this is a performance. And so there's a way in which it speaks to the way in which Vodou or Voodoo is often seen, particularly in New Orleans, even when you visit, as you know, a commodification. It's something that people consume who are sort of outside the culture and the religion. So what I think is really interesting about Diana is that it really does fit into, you know, the black exploitation heroic figure or even anti-hero um, who is using and accessing power, you know, against racism and, you know, sort of these destructive uses of power where you have sort of gangster um, and so, I'm all, so that's the other reason why I love, I, I really love studying religion because particularly with people who are marginalized and don't have access to power, religion becomes a way in which people access power. You know, these mystical qualities of religious traditions across the board is people access, people find ways to access divine or spiritual power as a way of trying to negotiate social, political, and economic power. It's interesting that Vodou Voodoo sort of serves that kind of role, but what's also interesting is you don't see Diana's larger relationship with Vodou as a practitioner. It's sort of what they call in Vodou this left hand. Well, I don't know if I want to call it that because I don't know if it's left hand. In Vodou, left handed sort of practitioners are, are those practitioners, well, and again, it's sort of it's marginalized, it's really on the outside of Vodou where you have people who sort of use or access the power in these sort of specific ways, which are called left-handed or sort of what we would call magic, this use of these technologies as a way of, you know, manipulating or gaining certain things. I think it's complex in this film because the, the culture and religion does allow for, you know, the, the pursuit of justice 
And so that's what makes this kind of, but, but you know, sort of only in very extreme sort of circumstances and sort of messing with this kind of left-handed use of access to this kind of power can also exact, exact costs and sort of moral, you know, sort of moral cost. She sort of is using, they're using this in the film in a way where you don't see Diana, the protagonist, really having a relationship in terms of the Vodou community or even with the zombies as sort of ancestors because these are supposed to, you know, these are um, enslaved Africans who've come. And so you don't see that aspect, which is really foundational to the practice of Vodou, where this is ongoing propitiation, this ongoing reciprocity that happens with members of the community. So if they were really showing Vodou, for example, it would be, you know, Diana, you know, practicing, engaging in ceremonies and rituals, acknowledging the ancestors. And so it's really fascinating how she even says at some point to Samdi, do what I say. And for a Vodou practitioner, they see themselves as servants of the law. So you wouldn't have that kind of relationship, but I, but it fits, it fits, you know, exactly sort of the agency of the black protagonist and the black exploitation, right? She's, she's exercising power and control, but as a practitioner of Vodou, you wouldn't have that kind of relationship with Sandy. You would have an interdependent. And so it wouldn't be Sandy do as I say, it would be what's the negotiation of the relationship for, you know, in order to get this kind of outcome or in order to get justice. There are times in the movie where I'm reminded of uh, it would be almost as if she had summoned him like a djinn or something where it is more of that you are under my control. Now that now that I brought you into this world, you are going to do what I say. And then there's also kind of a feeling that he's kind of along the djinn lines or even more into like a, like a Loki type of figure. It feels like Throughout the entire film, I'm just waiting for him to now take her to hell or wherever with him. And I'm glad that Celeste is there at the end of the film, but but otherwise it feels like, okay, tit for tat, now after I've helped you with your revenge, I'm going to take you with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really... That's re- but, what, but what does that image summon? I mean, there's a way in which... I mean, that's sort of what happens with black exploitation, right? There is the sort of tension of black agency, but there's also sort of this way in which there continue to be, continues to be this trading on black stereotypes. So you have at the end this black, you know, the six foot four black man who's, you know, sort of carrying off the panty clad, the panty clad white woman, <laughs> you know, against her will. Um, so again, that's a departure from Samdi. I mean, Samdi is, you know, the Gede class, they are very flirtatious, but he's, you know, his, he's married to, you know, another powerful law in uh, Brigitte. So, yeah, no, I think I think your analogy to the djinn is very appropriate, which is not the relationship in Vodou. If you treated Samdi that way in, in Vodou, it, you wouldn't, you know, it, it just, it, 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 it wouldn't be um, successful in a certain way. Or the moral repercussions, you know, like you said, I mean, um, would not only for the individual, but for even wider circles of people, you know, sort of might, would, would spiral out of control. Because what they understand is what do is you're really navigating very powerful, you know, spiritual, you're really navigating um, volatile, especially with the Gede family, with Samdi, who's part of the Gede family. They're very volatile uh, powers. You really have to be 
careful in terms of how you navigate that. So, um, so it's really interesting the role that Sandy uh, plays here, and even the ancestors. You know, the ancestors. I was really fascinated by the image. You know, of the zombies, they sort of have these machetes and the sort of association with. I mean, and Sandy even says, Sandy's character even says, all they know is evil. And I wasn't sure if that was a play on they, all they know is evil in terms of the evil of the systems of slavery, um, but the, the but the imagery the imagery of them with machetes sort of echoes for me the Haitian Revolution as well as slave insurrectionists such as Nat Turner, which sort of, again, draws upon white supremacist fears, but at the same time, again, it could be interpreted as consistent with the black exploitation sort of of agency. But again, going back to Vodou and how that worldview um, is shaped, Diana as a practitioner would have a reciprocal and a, and, and, and a particular kind of respect for those ancestral presences. And they sort of they're much more instrumental in terms of how they're used in the film, even though they draw upon, again, those sort of that imagery of the black is, you know, as an insurrectionist. Diana's relationship to them is really interesting and is a departure from how they would be understood within the voodoo religion itself. It feels to me like Diana has moved on at the beginning of the film, like, because when she meets up with Mama Matrice, who helps her with this whole thing, it feels like... Mama Matrice was a figure from her past, and she has gone past that. You know, she's she's post-religious, if you want to say that. And now that she actually needs help, she has to return to the well and return to her roots and have the, this relationship now. Yeah, that was my assumption. I think when I'm speaking about the relationship, I'm sort of more speaking to the way in which Voodoo is Voodoo is often portrayed and, and usually portrayed. I actually sort of revisiting this, I hadn't really thought about this before, but I realized I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that this is the sugar that, that, you know, um, that the princess and the frog is actually a Disney fi- a Disneyfication of sugar Hill in some ways. Um, because, you know, Mount Matrice in the woods. And I was really fascinated by the track of the sounds in the woods. Cause I know that I heard like apes or monkeys and I'm like, that's not in New Orleans, but again, it's sort of this, you know, this, the, the exotic or the African imagination of Africa, which I thought so, but, but, but I think that supports your whole notion of going back to your roots. And, and it also speaks to sort of this tension, but I, yeah, I just, I hadn't thought of it this way, but it really sort of is because you have both of those character, those character types in Princess in the Fog. You have Mama and you have the Baron. And you also have the southern plantation feel. I mean, with Morgan, you sort of have the master mistress, and then you have, I can't remember the name of the uh, the lord in Princess and the Frog, but, yeah, you sort of have, you know, in Princess and the Frog, we don't know of how, you know, the the plantation owner actually got his money, whereas in Sugar Hill, you actually do see, the you know, that 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 his, his exploitation you know, the community is problematized and, and creates, you know, the conflict, um, you know, where he meets his demise. And I think that's a really interesting line, which go, goes back to sort of how people use religion as a way of accessing power. And I think, you know, that's a class Christian. I mean, people do that with Christianity. They do it with, you know, um, um, Vodou as well is one of the lines 
is, you know, do they ever pay? You know, Diana asked this question, do they ever pay? Um, and so how she's marched also how she's trying to marshal these forces as a way of seeking revenge and exacting justice um, is is a part of I mean those ideas are certainly part of the Voodoo Odyssey. Same way you have in Christianity, so how do you actually deal with or address evil <laughs> within a particular religious tradition? In Voodoo, it just would be really complex in terms of how you navigate that and what are the ethical parameters. But as a like I said, as a device in the film, it sort of decomplexifies again who Samde and again like Samde, you know, who who was in this case again marshaling these zombie forces in Voodoo is you know, sort of the one, again, you propitiate to make sure you don't come under that kind of control um, that you can pass into the world of the dead because Gede is the one or, or Tamdi is the one who greets you into that world and is also part of this cycle, you know, of rebirth as well. So that's what's always interesting these these cinematic representations of Samdi or the Gede characters with the top hat and the the skull and the, the the cigar, you know, is you know, very simplified to death and sort of evil and selling your soul. Again, it goes back to these Christian binary notions of the devil and Christianity, and you really don't have that figure. You don't have that figure of that sense in a religion like Voodoo. We talk on this episode about how voodoo is typically vilified in films. Like I'm trying to think of an actual good example of voodoo. And this is possibly one of the few because it is at the end of the day, it's positive. You know, Diana gets her revenge. No, she doesn't necessarily have to pay for it. And maybe a little bit with her, her morals, but she seems to be okay at the end of the film. But for the most part, voodoo is, is, treated as voodoo it's treated as as this this you know like the like the word has that negative connotation as you were talking about earlier do you think that's more of a a stance from this kind of judeo-christian uh, front or is it more of just like a I'll, I'll go out and say it is it more of a racist thing where it's just like hey these people are trying to bring in this wacky religion we got to put them down and put them down by vilifying their entire religious practice I think it's both, and I think it's, it's, and it's, again, it's the nature of film. I mean, I think, you know, it's used as a device. And so I think there are dimensions of race and power where that is part of this, the Christian outlook and worldview that misunderstands sort of, a, of the, the worldview of Vodou religion and the constellation of these, these spirits. As I said before, it does continue to trade upon the images and stereotypes. I mean, what this film attempts to do is to problematize these issues of race and power. And again, utilize Vodou as a way of accessing power that opposes the social and economic and political sites of power. But, it, you know, but in the end, it sort of can't get away from continuing to perpetuate some of the stereotypes around how Vodou is understood you know, within the cultural imagination.
What's the subject of the interview again? Well, I want to know more about you, but especially about Sugar Hill. That's my entire oeuvre, do you realize, as a director. I've, got, I, I've directed some second units, but that was the only film I ever directed. I go to Sam. I say, Sam, I'm 40 years old. I've, made, I've produced a bunch of pictures already. Overseas doesn't hold anything for me right now. I said, I want to direct a picture. What do you got? He says, we're making black exploitation pictures. I said, Sam, what is a black exploitation picture? Because I've been living in Europe. I didn't know that there were, you know, all these characters. And AIP was leading the pack, making black exploitation pictures. He told me what it was. I said, he said, give me one of those. I said, give me some parameters. He says, make it mafia. There's mafia involved. And there's some voodoo involved and maybe some jokes. I said, you got it. One of the returning agents from uh, a literary agent from from London set up shop on Sunset Boulevard, and he represented a lot of the writers that some of the big agents wouldn't represent. I went to him. I I gave him the parameters of what I'm looking for for Sam Arkoff. Cheap, of course, inexpensive. Picture has to be made for under $500,000. And it's an AIP picture in the tradition of Roger Corman. And, and I, by the way, I didn't know much about Roger Corman because I was overseas and those pictures never traveled. Sam Arkoff, uh, I told him and, bump, and the next thing you know, I have a script in my hand called Black Voodoo. And uh, I, the principal character's name was Sugar Hill. So I called the picture Sugar Hill, gave it to Sam, and gave it to his head of production, whose name was Larry Gordon, Lawrence Gordon. This is his first real job in the film business, other than a, like a, a, a runner or an assistant to, um, what's his name? The guy who later became president of Fox, but that doesn't matter. Larry Gordon and I became good friends with Larry. I make the picture as a director, Sugar Hill. We go down to Houston. We make it for a price. And it was a bloody good picture. I, Marky Bay, who plays the woman in the picture, I thought did a good job. There were a couple of people that were discovered in the picture that went on to some pretty good careers, including Charlie Robinson. And I was very proud of the picture. We made it in 18 shooting days. The budget was $352,000, and it did fine. It did fine, and to this day, it's still being shown, and I have some DVDs that were just recently sent to me that I did. I think I did some background on it. So that's Sugar Hill. So what was that like for you, switching gears for a little bit there and going from the producing to the directing? How was it directing Sugar Hill? Because we had, I think it was a 98-page script, 96-98-page script. We literally, and we had uh, 18 days to shoot it. Some days I had to shoot four or five pages. And I was used to the um, Hollywood kind of three pages a day, three, three and a half pages, you know. And all of a sudden I'm under the gun. And I see... And I and I realized what I needed more than anything else was a powerful first assistant and a powerful director of photography. When I did the arithmetic in pre-production, I realized that those are the people I'm going to really have to depend upon. And I have to hire the best kind of people for the first, for the director of photography and for continuity, because I'm going to make mistakes. There's no question. 
I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to depend on my camera operator as well as my director of photography, my continuity person, to, to correct those mistakes. And it worked. It really did. The preparation, I only had two weeks to find locations for the picture in, uh, with a very small location-looking crew using some loca a location uh, uh, person in, in Houston. And by the way, this was shot during the heart of the summer, and Houston is known as one of the highest humidity and temperature states in the country. It was extraordinary, and we had to shoot in the swamps and this and that. But you know something? After the first week, because there was such cooperation of the crew, they all realized it was my first, and I, and I told them so, but they also realized that I knew the, the vocabulary of making movies. I wasn't an agent that became a, a, a director or a screenwriter that for the first time is on a, you know, on a set. I've been around a set now for a bunch of years, and I've been with the best, from Carol Reed to, you know, name the great producers that I uh, I saw and great directors that I've seen. So I I I knew the vocabulary, I knew what to do, and I knew how to handle actors, having been a producer, having to handle actors. So it went very well. We shot on schedule. Everything was completed as as it was. If I had anything that I could do over in that picture, it could possibly be some of, uh, if I wish I had a better effects for some of the effects that we had. There was a chance, <laughs> I don't know whether you've seen, you've seen the picture, so you know the chicken leg, right? The chicken leg is, is, brings out, when I saw the picture in the theater, you can imagine when that chicken leg came out. It was hysterical. When I mixed the picture, all of us were hysterical. We knew it was ridiculous. But then again, Sam Arkoff said, give me some laughs, too. And we do. We give you some laughs. There's some over-the-top performances by Don Pedro Cali. I mean, he, boy, he was big I mean, and, and over-the-top. But everything was, it, it was lovely. It was a lovely, lovely experience as a director. I never want to do it again. I just don't. Uh, I was 40 years old when I, I did it. It wasn't as if, you know, and you, the, the old story is you've got to have a good pair of shoes. That's for sure, number one. And number two, you have to expect a thousand questions before you shoot your very first frame on, on the day that you begin, you know. And uh, it, it's, it's not my temperament. It just wasn't my, and I enjoyed producing so very much. I really do. And so, but production-wise, it was a dream. It really was. And I had a terrific uh, producer on the picture, a guy who had done a lot of um, a lot of the AIP movies, and he knew his way around. And uh, he was very careful with the money because Arkov said, "I think three fifty. That's it. Don't go a penny above." And we didn't. We were great. The picture made money for the company. It did very well. You talked about the special effects. How did you do the uh, the eyes for the zombies? Put it first to makeup and hair. How how are you going to do the eyes? Then I went to special effects. How how can we do the eyes? So we had a sit down meeting, and so <laughs> so the special effects guy, who's a good guy and is used to working on inexpensive pictures, which is important, half ping pong balls, half ping pong balls, and the the edges were smoothed down in such a way that they wouldn't injure the eye, and that's as far as I remember, that's how it was, you know. 
and uh, the, the the pit where there's a there's a sand pit in the, in the picture, you know, a, a quicksand in the, in the picture. That was oats. Those were oats and something else, some cream. <laughs> I mean, you know, it worked. What the hell could I tell you? Everything was. And and if if we didn't have it on the day, I'd say let's let's shoot without it. You know, I mean, it was wonderful. And it was a great director of photography, Bob Jessup, who later did some other stuff for me. He did a, a terrific movie uh, that I did uh, called Race with the Devil. One of my one of my favorite movies that I did. That was for Fox. And I I, I, I didn't tell you Return to Oz. You know all the, you know the movies I've made so. Could none of the zombies see through those ping pong balls? They complained vigorously, but they they could they could barely see. If you play, I'm going to play the picture again soon again to see exactly how the people in the back, because the people in the front were just moving, you know, without having to have to see. But the people in the back, I forget why they didn't run into the people in the front. But anyway, I have to look at that scene again. It's been a few years. How did you get your start in the business? I guess it started early on. My father was a piano player around here. You know, people like Ned King Cole, Art Tatum, Teddy Wilson kind of music. And they loved him to death. I went to the University of Oregon and started hanging out with a bunch of jazz musicians up there and artist types. And then by 1960, everybody was going to San Francisco to be a beatnik. So I said, well, yeah, okay, well, let me go try to do that. And I got in town and uh, right away fell in with a theater group and had never done anything in theater before. Oh, except maybe when I was in about the fourth grade, I played one of the three kings in the Christmas pageant. During that period, it was called the Theater of the Avant-Garde. So if you could do the part, you did the part. Whether it was Shakespeare or Shaw or Beckett or Breck or Ionesco or Ibsen or Chekhov or any of the heavyweights of the time, that was my training ground, the heavyweights. And after five years of of doing one theater after another, I began to formulate a plan of attack. Each time I did a show, it would be in a bigger theater, a little better show, more lines, and keep moving up until one day I said, well, you know, I need to make some money at this. I don't have any money. I'm sleeping on theater curtains in the back of this theater, although we were doing a very exciting show. So, I don't know, I packed my bags and I went off to Hollywood and... My approach to Hollywood was not, oh, gee, I'm an actor. Would you please take me on and and put me to work? My approach was, I'm here to do a job. And if you people are standing in my way to get to this job, get the hell out of my way because I don't have time to waste on you. I've got things to do, and people are seeing places to go. Well, now, sir, wait a minute. Don't you realize if you have to? No, I don't realize. All I realize is that I need... To go to work and to do that, I have to have the right people with the right attitude, and and we can go from there. That was my plan of attack. I got in the theater when I was down there, and then I had to have an agent. You have to have an agent. 
So the next level of getting an agent was not, you know, it was to fill out an application and a picture and a bio and a resume and uh, maybe a letter of intent and send it off to these various agencies and then sit around for another week or two while they filter through the thousands of people that they have to see every week and decide that, you know, well, maybe and maybe not. I said, no, no, no way. This is too iffy. So I sent off my press package to the various people I really wanted to see after having asked other performers who were good character actors, that good for character actors. I sent off the package, and about three days later, I called the office and said, did you receive my package? Well, sir, uh, you know, that is, we have to. I said, that's all right. I don't, I don't trust it. I'll be in your office in 20 minutes. Oh, no, sir, you can't do that. I, that's not, and I hang up the phone. <laughs> and I get to the office, and I talk aloud because I'm talking to the secretary. She doesn't, you know, poor Gail, she doesn't have anything to do but two phone calls and shuffle paper all day long. Well, I want to see are the people that are sequestered down the hallway in the various offices. And so I'm talking kind of loud. And way after a while, uh, some guy comes out of an office with a piece of paper, and he walks toward her desk. I don't look at him, and he doesn't look at me, you know, and I make it obvious that I'm not looking at him or trying to recognize who the hell he is or anything. Just another guy, possible deterrent, and I'm not going to stand for a deterrent. I need work. I don't need people trying to sell how great they are to me. Forget about it. Show me. Don't tell me. Show me. So he picks up a piece of paper, and he goes back to his office. Well, we've seen each other and checked each other out at this point. So I turn around, and I leave the office. Boom! I go out as fast as I came in, slam the door behind me, leave a vacuum in the office. About 20 minutes later, I got a phone call. We would like to see you come into the office, and uh, uh, let's sit and talk. Okay? All right. You know, give a little, get a little. So I went back to the office, and I met all the other agents. The top, There were four top agents in the place. I met three of them, and the fourth... It was like the chief number one agent. He was he was probably across the hall somewhere, but they said he was out of the building for the time being. And they decided that they liked my attitude and my energy, and they put me to work one week later. I'm special guest starring on Doctari, and then um, doing a guest star in The Virginian. And then right in that process, uh, I get a screen test at 20th Century Fox for the Daniel Boone series. I'm thinking, wow, here I am in Hollywood already. I'm screen testing. Well, Marilyn Monroe and all the other big boys that have structure and get a screen test, I'm, I get one. And I had to compete against uh, two other fellas, and I beat them out because I wasn't thinking about competition at all. And thinking about the job. And uh, from there, I went to Broadway, off Broadway. No, I was on Broadway. as James Earl Jones' understudy in The Great White Hope on Broadway. In 1969, New Yorkers were still playing the stupid games of, we're New York people. We're, you know, there's nobody else in the world better than us. Even England, we have the best. And, you know, we, we can do anything we want to because we're the I said, get out of my face with this horseshit. You know, let's get the work done. 
So I called my agent. I said, hey, listen, these people are hanging me up back here. I don't get understudy rehearsals, which I have to have. I haven't got a final fitting on costumes, what I have to have. What's going on here? And I'm getting flack from these underlings, and I don't like it. And he said, don't worry about it. Go up to the front office and tell them that you're leaving the show, and that's all you have to tell them. I said, well, you don't have to give them two weeks' notice. And they said, no, you don't. Okay. So I went to the main office, and I said, okay, listen, hey, I'm, you know, the way you, the tre- you guys are treating me things here, I'm leaving the show. I'm out of here. He said, oh, no, you can't leave yet. We haven't ruined your career. I said, well, that's the reason why I'm leaving this show. I'm out of here. You, you people are all bullshit, and I don't have time for that. So they brought me back to the West Coast immediately, and I got co-starring role with Charlton Heston in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. In the meantime, I kept doing little plays here and there. And, you know, just generally immersing myself in the whole scene. And from that point on, it was a jump here, a jump there. Sometimes you have work right away. Sometimes six months go by before you get a job. So I had to drive a taxi cab to stay alive. And then one day, after 30 years in the business, I get a phone call from Warner Brothers. So get your ass over to the studio now. We need to see you right now. Oh, Christ, what have I done? I can't remember even. So I get over there, and I run into this director named Leonard Kaufman. Come to remember, Leonard Kaufman was a brand-new director on Gattari, the first, very first thing that we did together. And because of something that I had done on the set, he never forgot me for it. What had happened, they had a limited stunt they, they wanted this character to do. Well, we were more than 35 miles away from the main studio, and back in those days, they didn't have knowledge for doo-doo for black stunt guys. In fact, what they were doing, they were taking uh, white stunt guys, and they paint them with a burnt cork and put a skull cap on them and have them double me up. Like, <laughs> it was ugly. It was ugly. Finish shooting the scene, and then I'd have to go back and shoot the scene because if they didn't manage to work smaller than I was, the color was all wrong, everything was wrong. Well, anyway, in doing the being asked about the stunt. I said, we don't have time to go three hours back to the studio and get back out here in time. It's costing us $50,000 an hour as we stand around twiddling our thumbs. This is our first shot at it at the business. You know, I'm special guest starring and this is your directorial debut. I'll do the stunt. Oh, well, yeah, but what if you get hurt? Are you going to sue us? That kind of attitude is for amateurs. That's what it would rank amateurs think. We have a business to do to take care of it. Let's keep going. $50,000 an hour it's costing. And the people up in the office building back back home, they're not going to like that at all. Well, okay, I guess so. Let's go do it. So uh, I'm wearing a breech cloth, and I have to run through this field of chest-high weeds, slide down an embankment, trying to hide from whoever's chasing me, and the camera's sitting in a static position behind me, looking back over my shoulder at what was chasing me through the weeds. So I slide down the embankment, and I roll over, and the director says, cut, print, it was perfect. I hear the onset nurse say, oh, no, I don't believe it. What, what, what? Well, when I stood down the embankment, it, it, the weeds were covering up gravel, so my back looked like somebody had taken a garden rake to it. Yeah. So, you know, they're freaking out. I said, oh, for Christ's sake, it just scratches. There's nothing. Why don't we get one of my kids? Go get your 
methylate or mercurochrome or either, whatever it is you're using, doctor me up and let's keep going. This is costing money. Well, yeah, but you no, no, yeah, but let's keep moving here. So we finish out. 30 years later, I get this phone call. I go to Warner Brothers. I walk in the office and there's Leonard Goldman. And he says, you know, Don, I never forgot what you did for us that day, that day ever so long ago, 30 years ago. He said, they have a character on Dukes of Hazard that they want to give in some dialogue. And I thought of you immediately for this part. Are you sure you can have it? I said, what's the part? He said, he's Sheriff Little, Chickasaw County. I said, hey, right down my alley. <laughs> Just don't get in the way I might run over you. Huh? I understand. That was the first level. And then I had to go home and go into my closet and find something that I thought made me look like very sheriff kind of stuff from the South. Cowboy hat, my cowboy boots, and, you know, and whatever else I could come up with. And then the next level of this mess is you've got to play the game with the producers, which their game is you're a young performer and you want to go and audition. You go in their office and they're on the telephone and they're writing and you're standing there all, you know, all nervous and peeing down your leg because you're getting so anxious. And they're writing and they're on the phone and way after a while they hang up the telephone and then put the pen down, and they look at you, and they say, oh, what is your name, and what are you here for? <laughs> I said, I ain't going to let this happen. No way. So I get to the office, and I'm waiting to be called in. I'm chit-chatting with the secretary. And they said, okay, now, Mr. Picard, he, he's ready to see you. I said, okay, fine. So I put on a hat and got all prepared in my mind and everything, and I flew in the office and slammed the door behind me. Bam! And I stood there and filled his entire office with cop. Like, you're under arrest now. And he was on the phone with his pen, and it so surprised me. He looked up at me, and his pen slipped out of his hand. And it started to roll across the desk, because as he went to go get his pen, he was knocking his paper off on the floor. I said, oh, boy, I got this guy now, and I'm not going to let him go. <laughs> he tries to recover. He gets his pen and papers, and he says, uh, your name is uh, uh, Dr. Drucali, isn't it? I'm cop. I'm not saying anything behind my dark glass. I'm just all cop. <laughs> and he says, uh, you're here to read this part. Of, uh, are you prepared? Saying anything. I'm cop. You know, I'm waiting for you to make the wrong move so I can put you in handcuffs and take you out of here. <laughs> that was my whole attitude I was projecting. <laughs> so we have one line that we had to interview with. It was a line from one episode where Boss Hog and Roscoe P had stolen a van full of illegal hooch and I had stopped them at my border and Boss Hog is trying to talk his way out of whatever to get his ill-gotten gains back. But I take the hooch and then take it back to the van, open up the doors and take my shotgun and blow up the van. It said that after this long speech that Boss Hog had given me, all I can say is cow chips, like they lie. Cow chips. Cock my shotgun and then go do what I'm going to do. So I'm thinking, well, damn, now I can't have a shotgun in this guy's office. Can't do that. But as an actor, if you think about it just right, you can make the sound of cow chips sound like a shotgun cocking. Cow chips. Cow chips. Okay, okay, I can do that. So we came up on the line and I said, cow chips! And Picard came, he came three feet up out of his chair. Boom. 
It's like you've been sitting on an electric truck rod of some sort. <laughs> okay, we finished the interview, and, and I took off my hat. I walked over, shake hands with him, and said thank you. And his eyes were like the size of saucers. He, he, he was completely dumbfounded. I loved it. I had him all the way from the from the, and then I turn around, I walk out, boom, walk out of the office and leave the vacuum again. Don't linger, don't linger. Those who linger, they don't have anything to offer. You know who you are and you know what you can do. You offer it up and then you get the hell out of there, boom. And that's the inverted story of how I ended up on the last show that I did was Dukes of Hazard after being in the business for 30, 35 years. I wanted to um, ask you about a couple of your individual roles because you've been in so many favorite films of mine. Can you tell me what was it like working on Sugar Hill? I get to star in my own movie. I have to share billing, but I'm actually the star of this bloody movie. Working for Samuel Z. Arkoff. He the, was the king of the, of the B-movie circuit from the 50s and 60s and 70s. He did all the Annette Puninchello, Bobby, what you call it, movies, all the early stuff. And then he got into what was later termed black exploitation. They had hired me to do this part. And I went home and I worked on it and worked on it and came up with a, uh, a fairly creditable voodoo god who had studied all the different religions and related religious dogma of the various religions to voodooism. Way back, so I was pretty pretty well prepared to do my job, and they took us off to Houston, Texas, down in the Bayou area, down in there, hot and humid and sticky and wow. And we each had a chance to work out our fantasies in in horror fantasy movie. Lots of fun. You seem like you're having fun in that movie. You always seem like you have a twinkle in your eye. That's what it's all about. Having fun. Yeah, I was kind of the bad guy on the set. Not bad in terms of, you know, uh, uh, only in that I had done a lot of work already previous to this, and they were treating me like I was a rank amateur and didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. And I wasn't allowing it to happen, and it was, you know, and since Hollywood is such a highly political place, you know, those people were trying very hard to be offended when they all they were, they were standing my way and I was shooting, brushing them out of the way with a broom. And they didn't wholly like that a whole lot. But I didn't really give a shit because it was my job and I was there to take care of it. And the end result is what's important, not their import. All they're doing is standing around with their hands in their pocket and maybe putting their, piece, their name on a piece of paper. Well... Fine, I'm doing the work. You're doing nothing. Get out of my way. So, you know, it was fun. I just have some fun. Make it fun. Tongue and cheek stuff. Good stuff. I've heard interesting stories from the set of THX 1138. I talked to um, Sid Haig a few months ago, and he was telling me uh, that it was quite an experience. How was that experience for you? That was very thrilling in that I'm working with. Uh, Truly, the intellectual part of the business in Sir Donald Pleasance, Robert Duval, George Lucas, and and I'm I've been accepted in, in that group, and uh, you know uh, I 
was asked on occasion what I thought of certain things, and I, I would offer that up, but never anything more because I knew, you know, I, I'm brand new and nobody knows me or knew my name. I just, I'm there to do the work. And, and it was great fun. I learned a lot from Mr. Duval. And, uh, George, we had to sit on George collectively at times because George's attitude in back in the day was actors are chess people, chess persons, and he will move the chess pieces around on the board while he attacks it with his technical wizardry and whatever. And we told him, George, you can't do that. It's not going to work. We're actors. We're real-life human beings. We're caught in a situation, in a place where we're trying to survive to be able to get through to the next level, and that has to come out. That's, that's our job as actors. George would get all pissed off and say, oh, goddamn actors, and wander off the set. We'll sit down somewhere for a while. Because uh, he was at lunchtime one day, he let it slip that he was working on this new project, man. It was it was going to be something. It was going to have like 11 parts to it. And and, and it's going to be a futuristic things. It's going to call, be called Star Wars. And, and we said, George, let's get this in the can first before you start dipping out somewhere else. Christ's sakes. It was a learning experience for all of us. Like, we get to the studio in San Francisco, Coppola Studio, uh, on Folsom Street, American Zoetrope, and somebody said, well, what are we going to do today? we got a camera and we got, you know, film. What are we going to do? Well, and then somebody said, well, let's go down to bar tubes and, and film down in there. Okay, let's go do that. You got your permits? Yeah, we got those. Let's go do it. <laughs> we were like a guerrilla film group at that time. It was great fun. What was uh, kind of the attitude on set? I mean, you talked about how many great actors that you had. I mean, it must have just been so amazing to be working with some of these guys. I mean, this was one of your first feature film roles. Yeah, exactly. I have to attribute my attitude, general attitude about discrimination and segregation and being a fourth-class citizen looked upon it by everybody at, uh, to my mother. And she would say, you know, ignore it. Just ignore it because it's bullshit. It has no meaning. It has no validity. So whenever I was being faced with some, you know, uh, kind of off-the-wall statement or practice or whatever, I would ignore it. It meant nothing to me. And once again, that made me kind of the bad guy because I'm supposed to react to that stupidity. And I, since I didn't react to it, the stupidity was all over the face of the people giving it out. And they didn't like it a lot. Well, I, yeah. Listen, you've been hired to do a damn job. Do your damn job and let's get on with it. Oh, don't you know who I am? Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't really care to know. You let me know enough about you. I don't want to know anything more about you. <laughs> um, the one that you and I just so you know you and I met briefly years and years ago you were at a convention here in Detroit and uh, I, you were the one person who I was like I have to make sure that I that I m- meet this guy because you know you've been in so many favorites for so many years the thing that I remember so much about you is that you're very physically imposing you know very tall guy big guy did you ever find that to be an issue as far as being typecast or just like, no, you're not physically right for the part? Well, you can't be perfect for every part, but 
I came up at a time where minority types were getting jobs, and the ones that were getting the jobs were ones that weren't too frightening. You know, we'll give him a job and so forth, but he's, you know, he's a little guy or whatever. He's got a small part, whatever. He's not too frightening. I said, well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Why, why do I have to go in that direction? I'm I'm in show business, not show business. I'm in show business. And my business is being able to do a part and 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 show that this character that I'm essaying is a, a live human being with blood running through his veins. So at times I did emphasize my size as, you know, towering over everybody else, being, bringing that, that level of, of intimidation into play, which I learned a lot from Jack Pallance when I worked with him. Jack is such a rugged looking guy. He loved to intimidate everybody. But Jack and I eventually got along. We were great friends thereafter. It was great fun. I really loved your role in The Legend of Nigger Charlie. That was such a fun movie. And I just, those few movies that, uh, those few westerns that Fred Williamson did were so good, but especially that one. Well, we had hoped to make that at least that one real good because it's based on a real tale, an actual tale. And Paramount Pictures was backing it and putting all their good money and everything in it. So why go half-heartedly at this whole thing. Let's go give it our best. Now, once again, I was kind of the bad guy on the set because I was the only one that knew what the hell was going on. And these, from the producer, Spangler and Fred and everybody, they were spending Paramount Pictures money like it was, you know, a big, huge party every day. Uh, Spangler show up on the set with five women hanging all over and he'd be drinking his mint julep. And Fred would show up on his set with his shirt unbuttoned to his belly button. He'd have five women hanging on him every day, all day long. Uh, eventually, the assistant director started getting in, in the way of the director, and he started calling the shots, like, oh, stop, stop there. No, that's no good. We're going to have to film that again. Well, it's not your job. It's the director's job. And he, he got to me one day, and... I got on him right in front of the entire company. You know, you don't embarrass me like that or attempt to, you know. I'm going to let you know exactly what's going on. You're a damn assistant director. You're not the director. It is not your job to call or scream or holler at people and to call shots. That's the director's job. Do your job and we can get through this. And he had, at that point, already, you know, uh, a few of the other uh, crew members had began to, you know, pull up into his camp. But when I scored on him in front of everybody, they, they all backed off and left him alone. Because he was, he was being a total asshole. <laughs> I, I took Marty Goldman, the director. I said, Marty, I got to talk to you, man. Things are not going like they, they should. Well, well, what's up, Don? I said, hey, here, take this horse, and I'll take my horse. And we took off across JWE's 44,000-acre ranch. Yeah, down in, in New Mexico. And we must have rode a oh, better part of a mile away from our base camp. I said, Marty, let's sit down here on the edge of this little aurora and talk. I have to talk to you. Well, what is it, Don? I said, let me ask you, who wrote the script? Well, I did. Okay. And who's directing this picture? Well, I, I am. 
said, no, you're not, man. You're letting this assistant director take over, and he's calling the shots. I'm a professional actor, and I cannot function unless I get specific direction from you, the director. You're the one that says action. You're the one that says cut, print, or stop. We have to go do this scene again. Not that jackass over there. And I need you to take control of the set. Because what is happening, everybody's pulling this whole set apart, doing their own thing, spending Paramount Pictures money like crazy, you know, and not putting any film in the can. Well, yeah, Don, I, I know I was... I said, well, you know, damn, show me some balls, man, for Christ's sake. I got to have these things so I can function. Okay, well, we wrote back to camp. Who should be the first one to come? Where have you people been? Where have you gone to? I said, it's none of your damn business. I had to talk to the director. Well, you can't do that because I have to know. I said, no, you don't have to know. Go do your job over there like you're supposed to. This is my director here. And so forth and on and on. And I got a phone call from the front office at Paramount Pictures. They said, Don, listen, we've got a problem. Those people on the set are spending our money like it was water. And we've got to have some control on this thing. Would you please be our on-set by until we can get our officers out there to get this thing straightened out. I said, oh my goodness, thank you ever so high. I, I couldn't ask for a better favor, and I'd be more than happy to, to do what you ask. You know, I'm playing with the big boys now. I'm not playing around with it, you know, something unexpected. Well, they finally sent him out about a week later, and it was funny to see all these these jackass rats grabbed their little stingy brim hats and started bailing shit because they could see that they were messing up really bad. Some got fired, replaced, you know, but we basically got through with what we had because now there was power there from the front office at Paramount Pictures. And uh, we got through. You know. But I was the bad guy again. I didn't even care. I ignored it. I'd rather be the bad guy and get it right than be the good guy and get down the drain. Just because it was uh, another Fred Williamson and just a few years later, what was your experience on Black Caesar? How was Larry Cohen as a director? Oh, it was about the same situation. I, you know, I, I was not happy about the part, but I was there, and it's surprising how many people had seen Black Caesar and really liked it. And there's not much to say. I got paid. I did my job. And I went home. I didn't hang out. And that's what they wanted you all to do. They wanted you to hang out and drink beers and party and, you know, be a good time, Charlie. And no, man, I'm a professional. You hired me to do my job. I did my job. I'm going home. But you're not a team player. I, I'm not a player. I'm, I am the team here and we got a job to do and let's get it done. The rest of that is all bullshit. I don't have time for it. I read a rumor that you might be working with Fred Williamson again on something called The Black Cobra Returns. Is that true? Um, I, it, it's, if you've heard about it, I guess it's true because I haven't heard anything about it. <laughs> I have no knowledge whatsoever. I've heard, I heard the rumor many different times, but I, nobody's contacted me directly to say anything. I've told you what some of my favorite of your films were. How about you? What were some of your favorite things to do? Beneath the Planet was pretty interesting, a lot of fun. THX was pretty fun. Uh, I like the Starsky and Hutch that I did. We were 14 days in the Hawaiian Islands doing that. Almost everything I did, I liked. 
I mean, it's the shape they're said. There are no, no small parts, only the small actors. And if you approach every job the same with the same kind of attitude and energy and integrity, it can be your best thing that you've done ever, you know, versus the last thing you've done ever. What have you been up to lately? These uh, conventions all around the countryside, which is, you know, I'm busier doing that than I was in Hollywood the last 10 years or more. Dukes of Hazard events, uh, Comic-Con events. One after that, I've had something to do every month this year, except, I think, uh, March and April were kind of were dead. And other than that, I've, I've been on the move every month. I've got uh, two things coming up in the month of, uh, this is October already, almost tomorrow will be October. Uh, I have a Comic-Con to do here in my hometown, and then I'm going to do the cruise, the Dukes of Hazard cruise. Are you familiar with that? I had no such idea that something like that existed. Yeah, all the fans, huge fans of Dukes of Hazard, meet at Cooter's Place in Nashville, Tennessee. And then we drive from Nashville, Tennessee, to Cooter's Auto Shop in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is about 150 miles. and we. We do it in a huge caravan, so there's 30, 40 cars or more busting down the highway at breakneck speeds. You know, we pull up in Gatlinburg, and they shut down the streets, and the sidewalks are packed with fans, Dukes of Hazard fans. Oh, my. And I, I have a dear, dear friend. He's a deputy sheriff in Anderson County, Tennessee. He was so enamored with my sheriff little character that he built a sheriff little a patrol car that we drive everywhere when we go to these events. It's won all kinds of awards. He's done such a wonderful job on the thing. And so I go, I'm going to go and stay with him for a week, a week and a half or so, and we do the cruise. Yeah, I'm happy. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great talking to you. Thank you very kindly for allowing me to run my mouth. We are back, and we were talking about Sugar Hill. So now we did mention at the top of the film that there are other black exploitation horror films. I think a couple of them that I forgot were things like uh, Doctor Black and Mister Hyde, which I haven't seen yet. Um, Welcome Home, Brother Charles, which is pretty amazing, and uh, JD's Revenge, which is okay. I think it's got a really great trailer, but I don't think that the movie actually pays off. And then Abby, which, again, is kind of notorious. I haven't actually seen it. I don't know if anybody's, uh, if you guys have, well, obviously, Chris, you haven't. Heather, have you seen Abby, the black exploitation version of The Exorcist? Yeah, actually, I um, I got to review uh, the DVD released by Cinefear back in the mid-2000s, early mid-2000s. 2000s. I think it since has been re- released by somebody else. But um, so yeah, I've seen Abby. Um, 
I really liked it. I mean, it's, um, you know, Carol Speed is pretty amazing in it uh, as the as the titular Abby. Uh, you know, of course, you have William Marshall, who, you know, anybody who's into black exploitation films, of course, will remember him as Blackula and also as the king of cartoons from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Though my favorite 80s William Marshall role would be Amazon Women on the Moon, where he uh, he plays the, the video pirate. But uh <laughs> Oh, I'm so scared. <laughs> William Marshall, he was just, I mean, he was actually like one of those actors, kind of like Vincent Price, you know, where even if he's in something that's a little on the Drecky side, that presence, that voice, you know, he's always just such a welcome presence. And um, I liked Abby. Of course, it's directed by William Girdler, uh, who a lot of cult film fans will probably be familiar with for films like uh, Grizzly. Got so many others. Uh, Asylum of Satan, directed the Manitou. too. So Girdler is a pretty fascinating director. I always thought it was very weird that Abby got sued. It was it's, it's infamous because it got pulled because of The Exorcist of it, it being accused of ripping off The Exorcist, which I always thought was a bit of bullshit. Because I mean, obviously, a lot of films were inspired uh, by The Exorcist. I thought it was suspect that the one that has an African American cast. Is the one that gets yanked. Meanwhile, you have films like Beyond the Door and The Antichrist, among many others in the 70s. Angel Above, Devil Below. Exactly, yeah. That were just as obviously inspired if you know, by The Exorcist. If not, maybe a little more derisively so than Abby, in my opinion. But I, I thought it was quite entertaining. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a perfect film, but... Um, but, you know, I, I liked it. Well, I will have to check it out then. Because, yeah, I just had heard that it just wasn't a very well-made film. So I will definitely check it out. Or maybe I'm confusing that with The Turkish Exorcist. Oh, my God. I've always wanted to see that. I've only seen stills from it, but it looks bananas. I'm very surprised at how much I like Sugar Hill because typically I'm not a big voodoo movie fan guy because, it, like, so many – Voodoo TV shows and voodoo movies always follow the same path where it's, hey, we think that voodoo was the cause of this death. No, it couldn't have been voodoo. Oh, look it. This was voodoo. Voodoo's not real. Yes, it's real. No, it's not real. How about this? Doesn't this scare you? Oh, my gosh. Maybe voodoo's real. No, voodoo's not real. The end. Well, I mean, on top of that, voodoo, like as a – because voodoo's a proper religion or or voodoo. I think I'm I'm a little rusty on the on the topic, but um, but you know it's an actual religion, and I always thought it'd be cool to see something kind of do almost like a de demystify it a little bit, you know, kind of play upon the stereotypes, but then sort of uncover them. Now it's been years upon years since I've seen Serpent in the Rainbow. I remember thinking it was good, but I haven't seen it honestly since I was a kid. So I don't know if I can really add it because it's got Bill Pullman in it. Not Bill Paxton. <laughs> no, Bill Pullman. Not Bill Paxton. No, Bill, I love Bill Pullman, so it's not a hard sell. But I, I, that's that and Live and Let Die are the only two voodoo films that I can think of off the top of my head. Oh wow! Not a big fan of Angel Heart. Oh, Angel Heart's so good. I've never seen it. Oh my God, Chris! <laughs> no, hold on. Let me let me let me let me guess. That's the one with De Niro, right? 
where he plays Mr. Satan or Mr. Lou Cipher. It's got some like wacky name. Lou Cipher. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with those nails. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, I always wondered if this was intentional because maybe it's just me, but I always thought it was interesting that he was styled in that movie. I mean, not counting the nails, which are creepy, but I thought he looked a lot like Scorsese's character in Taxi Drive. Oh, I can see that. And I always wondered if that was because the Scorsese character in Taxi Driver is so creepy and so unforgettable. And um, that's one of my favorite scenes in that movie. And I quote it when in, in very inappropriate situations, <laughs> which I apologize. Wow. I, well, I mean, not like at church or I don't go to church. But like if I went to church, I wouldn't be all like, have you ever seen what a 44 Magnum can do to a woman's face? You know, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> In total mixed company. See that window? <laughs> no, I don't. I usually skip that one. <laughs> that's you see that woman. That's my wife. Yeah, no, we, we won't get started on. That. I always think of stuff like I don't know. Um, well, there had to have been a Voodoo X Files and Kolchak and those kind of things. I tend. I actually I associate it more with bad television. But then things like you know Weekend at Bernie's Two or you know Tales from the Hood, those kind of things are just like yeah, and and like even like. I mean, this is probably one of my, and I can't believe I'm actually going to say this because I don't want us to get off on another tangent again, but one of my favorite Steven Seagal oh, films Jesus. actually deals with voodoo with Mark <laughs> I was waiting for you to bring it up, Mike, because I knew it was going to somehow make it into this conversation. <laughs> I, I think you're, I think we're all thinking the same thing. So when the Sugar Hill reboot happens <laughs> in 2017, Steven Seagal is Morgan, or maybe even as Baron Samity himself. Cause I think Seagal, I mean, he's done reggae music. So he probably thinks he has the cultural appropriation card to do it. <laughs> I would like to see a Sugar Hill remake with Seagal in the Sugar Hill role. Oh shit. Like a gender swap. <laughs> there you go. Ghostbusters. It. Yeah. They just ghostbuster it and have Steven Seagal as Sugar Hill. And he has to wear that low cut white jumpsuit and have oh, an Afro. Hell. Oh, sold me right there. I, I I was waiting for you to mention Marked for Death and Screwface from from Marked for Death. He's dead, and they don't even know it. I would have liked to have seen Morgan in Sugar Hill die the way Screwface in Marked for Death dies, because that's a way more satisfying ending for another voodoo-related character. I mean, he gets like his eyes gouged out and his back broken, and then he's thrown down an elevator shaft. Well, some of the things when it comes to why I don't like voodoo in films and television is just, it seems to be more of a stand-in, at least when it's handled badly. Let me just put it that way. It seems to be a stand-in for xenophobia and and especially race-based xenophobia. It seems to be like, these people are coming over from Haiti, they're bringing their bizarre religion, and they're murdering innocent white people. We need to stop it. You know, it just, it always seems to come down to that thing, and like, you know, there's usually a voodoo doll involved, and it's uh, it's like, oh, they're they're taking over. They they can even take over my spirit. They can make me do these horrible things with this voodoo power. Stop it, you black people. It's always yeah. weird weird mysticism. It's what it strikes me as, and a way to possibly shoehorn in realistic zombies. Zombies, the real zombies. Oh God, come on. Now I will say we. I'm gonna have to give it up to an old school. And perhaps arguably the first zombie film ever made, which was White Zombie with Bela Lugosi. That is, and that seems to be the closest to 
the zombies of voodoo and everything, and that seems to be the the closest we're going to get get when it comes to some of that stuff. But I'd, I'd say Sugar Hill is, is kind of close, and luckily it doesn't treat it kind of xenophobically. No, no. I mean, I think that's the thing because the zombies in Sugar Hill actually also. They reminded me a lot of the zombies in Jacques Tournay's I Walked with the Zombie. I felt like that was, um, which that's another, that's an actually legit great film. It's interesting with the zombie genre. Voodoo is really such a tiny part of it. You don't really see traditional, I mean, other than like, yeah, and some cheesy TV TV stuff. But as far as like cinema goes, um, you know, of course, the zombie genre has like exploded like a big dog in the last probably 15 years. Um, but you don't see the voodoo aspect of it too, too much. And um, and I mean, given how sometimes it can be poorly handled, that's maybe a blessing at times, because I think you're right, Mike, when it's handled badly, it feels it does feel a bit xenophobic and, you know, if not outright racist at times. But that's why Sugar Hill, I mean, even though the voodoo in it's a bit you know, it's not totally accurate either. Though you're, though I'm glad you talked to voodoo expert because I'm by no means an expert. <laughs> but um, you know, I played Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Father, when I was a, a teenager. You know, my video gaming experience taught me about voodoo. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so I, that was kind of nice to see, like voodoo zombies actually as a tool of empowerment in some strange way. Like it didn't feel, even though they're, they're agents of death, you know, it's, it's in a way to kind of write not just the wrongs of sugar, but to write the wrongs of um, some really bad, nasty stuff that's gone down in history, perhaps. I was trying to think in my mind, cause I was thinking here, cause I know they mentioned Papa Legba in the film. They <laughs> say, Oh, it's not Papa Legba. It's Baron Somdi. And I was trying to rack my brain like Papa Legba. Where had I heard that? And then I realized that another film that uses voodoos in a respectful way, it kind of underplays it and doesn't really explain it, is in True Stories. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The David Byrne directed Talking Heads movie. That whole, I mean, the whole song, Papa Legba in the film, the John Goodman character, like going to him to have him use what I assume is voodoo because they're talking about Papa Legba. That, I mean, that's another use of voodoo in a not, you know, weird mysticism, black people doing strange things kind of way. That's such a cool example. And uh, no, I was really fascinated by the the voodoo gods that Mama Patrice mentioned, because she says, I'm going to mention the greatest voodoo god of all. But then she mentioned Samity and because she mentions Dimbala, but Dimbala is actually a little, you know, thing is that he's the uh, the Loa that is the creator of life. Dimbala, it actually would be kind of above Samity. But, you know, but who's going to be cooler? Like this really, you know, this this figure that's the, the giver of life who's probably going to be like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't like kill these dudes. Or Baron Samity who's like, ha ha! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> and you're like, okay, I'm going to go with the guy in the top hat. He's fantastic. Well, and Mike knows I always look for an opportunity to mention the talking heads. So that also kind of helps. But, I mean, I was surprised that Baron Samity was like the number one. And I was like, I don't know if that's entirely the case. No, but he but he's the most cinema friendly. <laughs> yeah, clearly live and let die is another case in point. Now we should ask one of the most important questions is what movie should we recommend to Chris to continue on his black exploitation journey, Heather? Ooh, see, that's a good question. Because there, there are some films. I know this is going to be one of these episodes where as soon as you we all get done recording, I'm going to think of at least two or three that I'm like, 
Shiza, why did I not think of that? No, I guarantee it. I guarantee we're going to screw up. So if people out there are like, oh my God, I can't believe you didn't mention this. Yeah, we know. We're kicking ourselves already. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, looking at what you have li- listed here, I think the two, I mean, we've talked about Abby. I love Blackula. Not everybody loves Blackula, but I'm, I'm a fan of Blackula. Um, I would definitely recommend Foxy Brown or Coffee because I'm a big Pam Greer fan personally. Also with Welcome Home Brothers, Charles. Now that's a film I'm glad you mentioned, Mike, because I actually was talking about this recently with a friend of mine who wasn't super familiar with it, but it's, that's a weird film. Cause I mean, I think half of it, you have like these gritty scenes of him in prison, like your lead character. And it's almost like, like art house stuff. Like it's real strange and very tonally different than the other part of the film, but it's an interesting piece of work. And on top of that, you get to see a man get strangled to death by a penis. I mean, if that doesn't sell one on wanting to see it, I don't know what will. Now, when it comes to coffee or Foxy Brown, I don't know if it's one of those things like which one you see first is the one you recommend, but I tend to prefer coffee over uh, out of the two. I think the soundtrack I like even more, especially King George's song I really like, and the whole idea of the razor blades and the afro and everything is just fantastic. I know there are some really good moments in Foxy Brown, especially the opening credits, but I would go coffee. I would also look at uh, two of uh, Jim Kelly's films. I'd go for Black Belt Jones and Three the Hard Way. And Chris, Three the Hard Way is where you get the team up of Fred Williamson, Jim Brown, and Jim Kelly. Oh, yeah. And it is just fantastic. And the whole idea of like the the plot that is going on in that film, this very sinister plot that is happening. Even though if you listen to the theme song to it, I think it's luckily they don't play it until the very end of the film, but it tells you everything that happens in the movie, but it's a fantastic song. Uh, <laughs> anything with Fred Williamson, you've sold me. It's funny because when I was making a little list here of, of black exploitation films, I don't have a whole lot of his stuff on there. Like I, I mean the nigger Charlie, the films there are pretty good. And especially if you like Don Pedro Colley, he was in the legend of nigger Charlie, but really I, I go for Robert hooks and trouble man. Oh, you want to talk about great soundtrack. Oh, oh yeah. The trouble man soundtrack smokes. It is so good. Well, there's, um, there's actually a reference to it in the, uh, is it, uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, where it's one of the things that he needs to uh, uh, figure, find out and listen to after he's been frozen for all this time. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's it's pretty hip that they do that. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Black Belt Jones. I love that. The Three of the Hard Ways, fantastic. I mean, the cast alone, but Black Belt Jones, uh, I, that is such a fun film. It is, it's so good. And I can't believe I didn't think of this immediately. Mike, but Rudy Ray Moore, Dolomite. Oh my God, Chris, you must see. Actually, I'd recommend The Human Tornado, which actually is my favorite. I love you so much. <laughs> the Human Tornado is one of my favorites as well. Oh my God, it is so. It, every single minute of that film is pure joy. I mean, I've never done cocaine, but I imagine snorting like a bunch of it and you're just like, oh yeah, you know, it's like watching Human Tornado. It's amazing. And um, you get to hear him say, bitch, are you for real? <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's, it's like a black exploitation film directed by Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> and, I mean, he even rewinds the film where it's like, <laughs> he was just saying, like, did you guys see that? 
<laughs> Let's see it again. <laughs> Check this shit out. I mean, it's so it defies logic, and yeah, it is. I, I don't want to. I won't even say Louis Bunuel. I know I'm saying his name wrong because <laughs> it's very Bunuel. I'm going to get corrected uh, by a dear friend of mine on that pronunciation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the man, and actually, I think Arkansas's finest export, because Rudy Ray Moore is from Fort Smith. I will watch these black exploitation films, but if we do a black exploitation month over at my site, Culture Shocked, I have to give you guys all the credit at this point. <laughs> so, just fair warning, I, all the credit goes to you guys because every single one of these movies you mentioned sounds insane. I really like The Baron. Not a lot of people talk about The Baron very much, but that one's pretty good. Um, and that's got, um, oh, Heather, what's that guy's name? Uh, is it Richard Lynch? Oh, wow. Uh, Richard, yeah, Richard Lynch uh, from Invasion USA and like, you know, I 800 <laughs> other films. Wow. Richard, Lynch. see, I've never seen the Baron, but Richard Lynch is, I mean, yeah, definitely one of the most uh, unforgettable character actors to emerge out of the sixties and seventies. I've wanted to do an episode on the Baron for a long time, but I've just never been able to find any of the people that made the film to talk to them. But I think it's a very underappreciated film. Chris, I would also recommend Truck Turner. Oh, uh, yes. So good. Not only does Isaac Hayes star in the film, but he also does the soundtrack. And if you've seen Kill Bill, there's uh, part of the soundtrack is used in Kill Bill Part 1. Fantastic stuff. And I think it was Jonathan Kaplan directed that. It's Yafet Kodo is one of the bad guys. And Nichelle Nichols, a.k.a. Uhura from Star Trek, is in oh there. Oh, my God. With the filthiest mouth ever. Oh, my I love how filthy she is. This, is. It, is it, now it's been it's been ages. But there's this whole monologue about how like you know about you know women selling pussy in Iceland or something like that. <laughs> it's so you're like you're oh my god, <laughs> you are amazing. Is she the best? Probably one of the best uh, madams, I would say. Uh, in cinema, she's yeah. That's I think that's been sampled. Actually, I think there are people that have actually sampled her whole uh, a lot of her dialogue in that film because it's just so colorful and and batshit completely. Just you know, now we're a family. <laughs> like after she's like, you know, you better start s- selling that pussy. <laughs> but we're a family. Um. <laughs> One of the classics is Superfly, and again, you're talking about just an amazing soundtrack, probably one of the best soundtracks ever. Um, and that's really typifies that whole idea of the pimp as hero kind of thing, though it's it's kind of a depressing film. Kind of along that same line, I would go with Candy Tangerine Man, which is finally coming out on Blu-ray. And we covered that one on the show God, years ago. And <laughs> Candy Tangerine Man, for the longest time, the only version you could see was this VHS version that looked like it had been run through a vat of purple dye. You just couldn't see anything. Even the daytime scenes just were like, what the hell is going on here? Is he mowing his lawn? What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That's amazing. I'm so glad. There's so many great films coming out on Blu-ray that for years just seemed impossible to get. And then the final one that I'll recommend is The Mac. I think The Mac is absolutely fantastic. And of course, I didn't mention Black Shampoo, but everybody should just you know watch Black Shampoo regardless. Yeah, if you if you know who Mike White is, you will know <laughs> of the love for Black Shampoo. 
it's your thing. It's like it's like me and Timothy Carey. This is a quick side note. It has nothing to do with it. But Starsky and Hutch, where he plays a racist pancake maker. See, it's that's, oh, my God. Se- seek it out. I mean, don't even watch the whole episode. Just watch him in it. But I'll watch a whole episode. I love Huggy Bear. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all right. But, I mean, I just love it because he's like, he says this horrible racist thing. And then all of a sudden he's like, hey, where are you boys going? You know? You need to try some of my super pancakes. <laughs> and he's wearing these tight plaid pants. Oh, my God. I guess speaking of Huggy Bear, one of the most easy to, to digest black exploitation films, I would think, would be Cleopatra Jones. So, if you, if Chris, if you want to kind of ease into it, I would say Cleopatra Jones might be your next best bet. I mean, I'm all for just jumping into the deep end. So Black Belt Jones and, and Human Tornado, do it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just it's just movies. <laughs> I want to ease into it. I, I I enjoyed Sugar Hill, so I'm all I'm on the I'm on the hype train for black exploitation films, and I'm I want to see something that is as kind of batshit crazy as Sugar Hill is. Well, then Darktown Strutters might be oh next. My, oh my god! <laughs> yes, that. Where is the Blu-ray release of that one? I want. Oh my god! Yeah, the, with a villain who looks exactly like the Colonel. From K from Kentucky. Well, it's not Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore. I guess it's just KFC. But all right, guys, let's take another break and play preview for next week's show. Shit, we can make a fucking good bitch of a bastard movie if we all pull together and work as a whore-loving cunt penis team. We take over the studio. You're out. going to make the first porno musical. Far out! Take one. Orgasms are short spasm of love. All right, all right, let's get on with it then, okay? Oh, I, I, I believe in a, a, a fluid camera, you know, a, 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 a Manellian camera. <laughs> Who gives a shit? We're just dancing, dildos are we. Dancing, you see, just for you. I will not do this scene until these damn dildos know their steps. Your stunt cock is here. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the first nudie musical, which may not actually have been the first nudie musical. Heather, you might know that better than me. (laughs) I don't know why you would say that, Mike. (laughs) That is definitely the name of the film. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Heather. Chris, what are the haps over at the Culture Cast, sir? Well, uh, right now we are smack dab at the beginning of our look at Films that are adaptations of Shakespeare's greatest works. Uh, We're kicking off this month with the 2011 adaptation of Coriolanus, 
And uh, one of my favorite Shakespeare adaptations, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Technically not a Shakespeare adaptation, but it is written and directed by Tom Stoppard, and he wrote the the play as well. So uh, that's that's what's going on with us over at the Culture Cast. Did you have any luck getting Tom Stoppard? No. No. I don't. Me neither. I don't I tried think to get him. so. I want to say no. Mind you, it was a lot of no's. So, <laughs> a lot of no's and a lot of no responses. So, the plight of the podcaster continues to roll on. Did Ray Fine say yes for Coriolanus? Ray Fine said no. He is busy. He's doing stage work right now. And uh, Tim Roth's people said maybe. Mm. So, but I've gotten a maybe from his people twice before for two different things. And then they ended up just being like, eh, no. <laughs> so, I'll put a whole lot of chips into the pot of tim roth ever being a interview so no it'll be gary oldman he'll just call you up one oh, day it's gary oldman what why Hello, are you calling mate. me <laughs> that's happened that's happened three times in the past where people have just outright called me and i'm just like i don't have time for an interview and they're like this is the only time i was like all right thanks bo bridges well i, I cool let's just do it right now fine i don't have my recorder set up i don't have anything yeah. yeah yeah yep brenda vaccaro was the same way with me one time I was oh just like, God. all right, I guess I should not put my phone number on these emails anymore. <laughs> this is a mistake. If I'm going to get surprise called by anybody, I don't think Brenda Caro is a bad choice. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of impressive, Mike. <laughs> well, she thought I was the other Mike White at first. Oh, so. no. Oh, yes, Mike, I remember you. We met at this charity event. I was like, yeah, no. You should have just, just rolled with him and like, yeah, it was me. Nice yeah, talking you- again. <laughs> You were you were amazing that night, Brenda. <laughs> I've thought about taking my phone number off my emails because of that. Because people just like to call. For me, just getting called by people, it always reminds me that people aren't actually that busy. Because Bo Bridges called me on his way from, back from the airport. Okay, so people aren't really that busy. Heather, what have you been up to lately? Well, um, I'm currently working on a piece about uh, the new documentary that's on the legendary punk band The Damned called Don't You Wish That We Were Dead, uh, as well as an article about uh, tragic Hollywood actress Barbara Payton uh, in her memoirs, I Am Not Ashamed. And of course, for all that and more, you can always visit uh, me at my website, mondoheather.com. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, guys, and thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to go on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more information about today film. You can also find a link over to the Projection Booth's iTunes page where you can rate and review the show. While you're there, you might as well rate and review the Culture Cast, too. I think you're on iTunes, we Chris. We are. On, an, on any platform for podcasts, yeah. The whole schmeal and schmazzle kind of thing. <laughs> we're, every, we're anywhere that podcasts are sold. And no one sells podcasts, so... No, that's true.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Now go to that voodoo that you do so well. <laughs>